Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a distinct pleasure to honor my next guest to the podcast. He spent 20 years on active duty as a U.S. Navy SEAL. He's one of very few SEALs who's actually graduated the Marine Sniper Program. He has eight deployments, count at eight, uh, several of which were both to Iraq and Afghanistan. He was voted the Naval Special Warfare Group 1 Sailor of the Year. And he's one of the most polarizing figures in Naval Special Warfare and all of the U.S. military. He successfully completed the Bobby Knight School for Temper Control. And he's the only guy to get Mother Teresa to motherfuck him on national TV. Please welcome to the stage, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Eddie Gallagher. Oh, that was awesome. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Glad to uh, be here. Well, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate you coming. I'd like to take a quick minute to thank our sponsors of this episode, starting with Origin Labs, the makers of Jocko T, uh, Go Discipline, and all of the Origin products. They make pants, uh, old school blue jeans, boondocker type boots. Uh, and even uh, jujitsu geese, a uh, great company. They've been supporting us for a while now. Uh, I use a lot of, of the Jocko supplements and other origin products. Um, Bubs Naturals, uh, which is a company that was founded on the memory and legacy of a good friend of mine, Glenn Doherty, uh, nicknamed Bub, which is where the company comes from. And they put out a, a stellar product of both um, collagen powder and MCT oil powder. Uh, that I actually have in one of my cups right now uh, with coffee. I, I take it every morning. And one of the neatest things about that company is that 10% of all of their proceeds go to the Glendory Memorial Foundation, which uh, helps uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guard all over the country uh, with uh, post-service um, transitioning, etc. And so uh, if you support Bubs, you're supporting the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation, which is an awesome thing. Uh, our other sponsor is Blackwater Ammo, uh, which it's a, a newer ammo company that uh, has been gracious enough to sponsor this podcast episode. Uh, they've got some really, really cool ammo coming out, some that they've even developed in-house um, and, and a multitude of different rounds, both pistol, rifle, and shotgun. They've got some really neat 
uh, ballistics uh, that have come out of some of their R and D and and uh, look look in the future to see uh, you know Blackwater Ammo really making some waves in the uh, in the ammo industry. Uh, they've been gracious enough to um, also make a donation to uh, Eddie Gallagher and his family. So thank you to Blackwater Ammo. All right. So uh, first, but but foremost, I got to ask you uh, for the lightning round. What's your favorite episode of NCIS? <laughs> Uh, you know what, man? I, I actually uh, watched NCIS for the first time when I was locked up in the brig, and uh, that had to hit home watching oh, it in there. Huh? It, it, but I'll tell you what, it matches up perfectly for exactly how they operate. Uh, but uh, hopefully, uh, maybe they'll make an episode yeah, about me. I, I, I don't doubt it, or they'll at least have <laughs> one that uh, you know everybody everybody knows it's about you type of thing. Yeah. Uh, what was the most surprisingly pleasant thing about pretrial confinement? Trying to focus on the positive. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, the, the, the most positive thing that came out of pretrial confinement was uh, probably just the strength and just make like the making my family stronger and just tighter. I mean, we, my wife, my kids, we're, uh, we're a super strong family and you have to be, you know, going through this job. But then I think that just put us over the top where I think everything they tried to do to us to try and break us or weaken us just made us stronger. And, uh, you can definitely see that now. Yeah. Yeah. We'll certainly get into the, the family dynamic, the impact, uh, and the enormous role that your wife played, uh, which, you know, will be its own section in this podcast, but that, uh, it's good to hear that, that, uh, you know, that they were there for you in, in that manner. It, it sure seemed, you know, like keeping track of, of what was going on, you know, there was multiple times where I found myself thinking like, holy shit, like that's got to be really rough situation to be in. But seeing the, you know, kind of the, um, the element of support that you were getting from, from the family was pretty, pretty inspiring. Yeah. It was amazing. Uh, what's the biggest misconception that people have about you? Oof, there's definitely a lot. So I'm, uh, I think uh, now that, you know, I'm out and I, I end up meeting people, there's the biggest thing I've found is, uh, you know, when they come up and actually talk to me, I can see it in their face because, you know, they they come up with this, you know, conception that what's been put out in the media, that I'm some kind of psychopath, uh, yeah. you know, rogue, whatever. But then after talking to me, they're I mean, I've been told like, oh, you're actually uh, a pretty normal dude. And I'm like, yeah, um, yeah. that's the way it is. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that is the huge misconception is, you know, that I've been branded as a, well, by the liberal media as a, uh, psychopath, uh, warmonger, which is not the case. Yeah. On, on the flip side, is there something that the, that the media or kind of the general public, uh, has portrayed you as that's, that's actually pretty, pretty accurate? Um, yeah, I mean, just the, you know never given up aspect, you know, never out of the fight. Just, you know, we're still, you know, we're still fighting, um, to expose everything that happened and not just to me, but also that's happening to other military members. Um, that's the other positive aspect of being in pretrial confinement was I saw behind a curtain that I didn't even know existed. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys locked up, um, that are similar situation as me. You just don't hear about it because, uh, one, they, don't have a trident um, and they're being illegally detained or, you know, unjustly prosecuted. So we're going to continue to uh, 
expose that. Yeah. I'd say the other thing, too, is I don't think most people that are put in that position has has a wife that, uh, you know, is kicking people in the fucking throat, you know, <laughs> the, the way that your wife did. I mean, yeah. hats off to her. Like, I mean, there's I, we were talking about this before. I think there's very, very few women that would uh, that would do what she did, uh, you know, for you. And, and that that says a lot about her. But uh, but just, you know, I, I don't think most people have that luxury. You know, they don't have somebody that's kind of really intimately working every fucking angle like their life depends on it in, in or on your behalf. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of that is due to the way they uh, treat you once once they uh, find allegations on somebody. You know, NCIS is a huge part of this. They they find ways to sort of break up your family and try and get the family to, like, turn on each other. Yeah. And she refused to let that happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't say it enough that, yeah, she's my hero. So. Yeah. No, it's fucking, that's neat to see for sure. What uh, What's the first thing that you did after you were, were freed? Um, so after the, uh, judge, well, I was, uh, free from pretrial confinement, um, before the trial. Uh, the first thing I did was went out and had a steak dinner. Uh, cause you were a, eating some pretty gnarly shit in, in there, right? Oh like, yeah. You know, it was like vending machines and fucking. That was, yeah. So when I got released out of the brig, um, you know, the president had, uh, tweeted like, let this guy out, um. And he wasn't saying I was guilty or not guilty. He was like, let him out so he can properly defend himself because he knew I was having all my rights violated in the brig and I wasn't getting able to talk to my uh, legal um, while I was in there. So once I was let out, the command, which was uh, Commodore Rosenblum at the time, had taken it upon himself to lock me in a barracks room for a month and a half and pretty much put... Um, just this ungodly amount of restrictions on me to where if I sneezed wrong, I was going back to the brig. So uh, I was stuck in a barracks room and there was really no, no real food. They had a little shop at, and then, uh, some bedding machines. So yeah, it was good. Once I uh, was released, I went and had a steak dinner and a bunch yeah. of drinks and yeah. just Fucking tight. got down. Yeah. What, uh, so now, now that you're, you're out and, and you're kind of settled into what, you know, anybody would, at least remotely consider a, a civilian normal lifestyle. What uh, what does your morning routine look like when you're at home, not traveling, et cetera? Uh, yeah. So right now I'm I'm just so sort of relaxing, uh, decompressing still from it all. But I'm and spending as much time as I can with the family. So uh, my wife and I take turns, usually getting up in the morning, getting the kids up, and uh, getting them to school. Um, then I'll come back, uh, you know, drink some coffee. And then usually go for a run, uh, try to get a run in uh, in the mornings. And then uh, after that, I usually spend my morning. I I definitely uh, I read uh, some of the Bible. Um, I mean, that was like a New Year's resolution of mine was to just uh, make my way through the Bible this year. Um, do that. Just uh, sort of reflect um, on everything that happened and uh, trying to get myself in a positive mindset. And from there, we just... My wife and I are like partners now. We just start working, um, making calls all morning. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, historically or, or, you know, previously, were you, uh, would you consider yourself a, a religious or faithful person prior to all of this or? Yeah, I would. Um, you know, I grew up uh, Irish Catholic. Um, my dad was a pretty strict Irish Catholic that I went to, you know, we go to church every Sunday, but then uh, after leaving the house, I stopped going to church, and then once I married Andrea, that was uh, one of her 
checks in the box like listen this is really important to me and um you know i think from there i've i've tried you know i am i believe in god uh, i do have a lot of faith but um I think there's, you know, you can always be stronger in that. Yeah. Know? To me, so, I mean, there, there's kind of two, there's two separate components of that. There's the, you know, the traditional or, or what most people consider religious, which is, you know, reading the Bible, going to church, whatever. But to me, there's another component that, that to me is more practical and realistic, which I guess I'm curious, you know, throughout those eight deployments, did you find yourself believing, relying on God, praying, you know, is that, is that something that played a role in, in your deployment after deployment or did it come and go or, or how, how do you kind of, uh, no, I, that? um, before every op, before getting on the bird or getting the Humvee, I would, you know, say a prayer to myself, but it was more just to, uh, that the platoon would come home safe. And, uh, none of my boys would get injured or killed and we'd be able to do our job properly. Um, yeah. and that's, you know, and then the rest is, you know, there's, you have faith that that's not going to happen, but then you also, the rest is on uh, you and the boys to get the job done and mitigate yeah. as much risk as possible. Yeah. Uh, so childhood wise, um, I know you're from Indiana, but that's, you know, there's certain things I try to not find out about guess that being one of them, but I, I accidentally saw that you're from there. Uh, can you talk a little bit about just uh, your childhood growing up, et cetera? Yeah. Um, so I'm not really from Indiana. I uh, grew up an army brat. Um, my dad was a uh, uh, West Point grad. Um, he retired as lieutenant colonel after uh, 24 years of service. So I grew up moving around every two years. Um, I lived in Asia a lot, most of my childhood, um, Korea, China, Hong Kong, um, Oh, you got the Wuhan flu or what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got a strong immune system. Yeah. That's for sure. Uh, bat soup. Fucking yeah. <laughs> build your immunity up. <laughs> and then, yeah, we'd move back and forth, uh, from like, we'd spend two years in Asia, come back to, um, Washington, DC, lived in Springfield, Virginia, where my dad worked at the Pentagon and then stayed there for two years and then go someplace else. Uh, after my dad had, uh, retired, we ended up in Indiana. I was a uh, freshman in high school. Okay. I pretty much spent the remainder of my childhood there until yeah. I joined the Navy. Now, being from northern Iowa, which is pretty similar to everywhere in Indiana. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm curious, like having that type of childhood and then transplanting into, you know, Midwest flyover state. Was that a, a bit of a culture shock for both you and classmates of like, who's this fucking guy that's been all over the place? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think once I moved... Cause we uh, moved from Springfield. Um, yeah. My dad came home and was like, yeah, we're moving to Indiana. And the uh, closest thing I knew about Indiana was the movie Hoosiers. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, dude, you know, what the fuck? Like we're going to be living <laughs> in cornfields. Yeah. Playing um, basketball. Yeah. But once I went out there, we actually moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is the second biggest city. And uh, dude, I, I loved it there. I mean, the, I love Midwest people. Like they're like the salt of the earth. Yeah. Um, and I, I had, I made the best, best of friends there. I mean, to this day, we still talk, um, you know, it was, uh, yeah, I liked it. Um, but yeah, it's like the Midwest feel. Yeah. No, I mean, like I said, I was very similar. I've spent enough time in Indiana to, to know that it's pretty paralleled that way. Um, did you have any siblings and did you play any sports? Yeah. So I have one younger brother, Sean, uh, four years younger than me. And then, um, does he have any military experience? Or did no, yeah. um, he definitely thought about it. Um, but he, I mean, that guy is a brainiac. Mm -hmm. So he's definitely, I can see him going into politics. Um, he's just, uh, he's awesome. 
and I played soccer uh, a little bit in high school, but then that sort of fell off. Uh, I was not the best student, you know, I was uh, a troublemaker. Um, what, uh, like, what kind of trouble did you get into in high school? Oh, all sorts. I mean, it was more, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the maturity, I guess, for high school or, you know, I just wasn't all in when I was there, just, you know, wanting to do other things. And uh, I ran with a pretty, it was an awesome crowd, loyal crowd, but a very wild crowd. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, it was a lot of skipping school, doing whatever, um, you know, smoking weed, all that stuff. Um, and then I actually got sent, my parents had it out with me, uh, which I don't blame them. They had enough and they sent me to a boarding school uh, when I was a junior in uh, Connecticut and ended up getting kicked out of there for fighting. Um, went back to the Catholic school that uh, I was uh, previously at and ended up finally graduating from there barely. Um, so yeah, it was, yeah, I mean, my childhood, I wouldn't take it back for anything, but yeah, I mean, I was a little bit of a wild child. So with, uh, with your dad having, you know, a Lieutenant Colonel, strong military, I'm sure structured and, uh, you know, just that, that type of upbringing, um, and him getting to the point where he sent you to boarding school, like, was that relationship between you and specifically him, uh, pretty tumultuous all through high school or? No, um, I think, you know, it was definitely a strain on him. He, uh, we're both pretty stubborn. So it's, uh, you know, he'd get fed up with me and then I would just get fed up with him. Um, it just was one of those things I think needed to happen. Yeah. Uh, he, and he wasn't the, um, he didn't bring his home, you know, work home with him yeah. uh, as far as when he was in the military. And that's one thing I really liked about him is he wasn't one of those guys that came home and ran like a military household. He, you know, just came home and he was dad. And I think I, I tried to take that same characteristic when I joined with yeah. my kids. Yeah. Um, when, he, when you ended up having to go to, to boarding school, was there like a straw that broke the camel's back where your parents were like, all right, fucker, that's it. You're going to, you know, was there like a, a specific instance? Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, after sophomore year, that summer I was getting, uh, just in a lot of trouble. Um, and it was not, it wasn't like trouble with the police or anything. It was just trouble at home. Like, you know, sneaking out or coming home at like two, three in the morning. Uh, and my parents were just like, dude, you need, you need some structure. Um, and we, we obviously can't provide that for you. You're not listening to anything. So I think they, you know, they did it from, they were looking out for my best interest. So they decided to, uh, send me to this boarding school. Yeah. Um, and so with, with that, I'm, I'm curious, having been in the military uh, for as long as you were, boot camp buds the whole bit, uh, how does how does a boarding school, and I know they're all a little different, but how does it contrast to, say, boot camp, or is it pretty fucking similar? Oh, no, it's completely different. Um, so I, I've always heard about boarding school. I've always been curious, like, yeah, what the fuck so that's it, even like. It wasn't like a military boarding school. It was just uh, it was a St. Thomas More um and it was like it was almost like a preparatory school so i went there and um it's it was a lot of uh rich kids from uh new york because it was in connecticut um and it just it was very it was lax i mean there was a lot of room to go you know do what you want and get in trouble which i took full advantage <laughs> of uh, but yeah there was no uh it, it i don't think it was what like 
people picture as you know a military boarding school where you're there's a set schedule yeah. um i mean you i was stuck out there for you know in connecticut for the whole time but uh you know it was an experience just like everything else yeah. <laughs> so ultimately you ended up getting kicked out of there for fighting yeah 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 all right so you go back to uh to indiana and then you finish high school there what uh what was kind of the driving force of you deciding you know what i'm not only am i going to join the military but i want to be a frogman yeah so uh after high school i gave college a shot and went to a community college um ipfw for probably half a semester and realized like this <clears throat> this isn't for me um i'm just not into it and i'm not gonna waste the money you know going to college i work some odd jobs and like i said you know I was hanging out with a pretty wild crowd, and uh, I think just one day I was um, with a bunch of them, and uh, it was like three in the morning, watching TV, and I just looked around, and um, it was a older crowd I was hanging out with, so it was like a lot of 35, 40-year-olds that were really, <laughs> yeah, dude, I was, uh, I just looked at, I just looked at them, I was like, dude, I can't end up like this. Um, I drove right from there to the uh, recruiting office, sat in the parking lot, waited for it to open, and uh Walked right in. Um, was there something in particular about the Navy that, or the, the SEAL teams? And no, like I, I walked into their first recruiting office. I saw, but then, uh, I, you know, I grew up watching, you know, Commando, Predator, all, like all those movies, Platoon, Navy SEALs. Uh, I knew that's like the type of work I wanted to do. Um, so I told him, I was like, dude, I, you know, I want to be a SEAL. He had one of those, you know, obviously posters on the wall, but I was like, that's what I want to do. Uh, he say me. He sort of gave me the runaround, like you know, nobody makes it into this. But he really had no clue of how it worked. And then pulled a fast one on me and was like, "Oh, for sure, um, we'll get you a contract." There was no contract. I just yeah. went right to boot camp. Picked my A school. Um, went to boot camp, and uh, from there I tried to go to buds, um, but obviously I didn't have a contract. So the uh, the next choice was going to the uh, Marine Corps as a corpsman, um, which I'm grateful I did. Yeah. So the uh, upon joining the the contract or the the A school that you had, did you pick corpsman going in? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> having no real clue what a corpsman was either, he yeah. told me that uh, the SEALs were looking for corpsman yeah. um, at the time. I was like, recruiters. sweet, yeah. um, I'll do that. Yeah, just be a corpsman and you'll get right in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so at that time, like if you're, you know, you're going to, it sounds like a junior college, uh, hanging out with a bunch of old, you know, washed up 35 year olds sitting around watching cartoons or whatever. Like, were you in any kind of shape at that point? Like, were you still working out or? Um, yeah. So once I made the decision to join the Navy, um, I was, you know, I think three or four months before I, you know, went to MEPS. So I. I really like a switch had sort of turned on in me. Um, and, you know, I stopped, you know, hanging out uh, with a wild crowd. I was just like, you know, I, it was like, a, like I said, a switch. It was like 100% focus um, on what, what I wanted to do. I definitely started working out on my own. Um, really had no clue on, you know, exactly how to work out to get ready for buzz. But I would, my dad is a uh, um, PT freak to where he, my whole childhood, he would get up at five in the morning. He had a little basement gym. So started working out there, going on runs. And I've always been, you know, I don't know, blessed with, I, I mean, 
sort of athletic. Uh, so it really wasn't a big issue. Yeah. And did you find like most people, I guess, or most SEALs when they go to boot camp, you actually get in worse shape than... Yeah. Um, once I showed up at Navy boot camp, I literally was like, I think I made the biggest mistake um, yeah. coming here um, <laughs> after they were screaming at me for not folding my clothes and making my bed yeah. correctly. I was like, and there was no, you know, you're not working out in there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think there was uh, one other guy in my uh, boot camp that wanted to go. So we would sneak off and go work out and like try and do stuff in the bathroom, pull ups on the stalls, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, find reasons to get beat. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess going back to high school real quick, did you grow up uh, or meet your wife actually in high school? Yeah, so uh, her and I met when we were uh, 16, 17. Um, she's a year younger than me. Um, Did you guys date then? No, we uh, sort of just met. Um, we actually both snuck out of our house, uh, had a mutual friend and met up and, uh, you know, out doing things we shouldn't be. But uh, we hit it off right away, became like best friends. Um, we just would hang out all the time together. Uh, we never you know, dated or around like boyfriend, girlfriend, but we were like super close. Uh, and then, um, once I decided to join the Navy, she had plans. She was going to Florida to, uh, go to design school. Um, and we sort of went separate ways, uh, lost track of each other. And, um, after I had graduated, uh, buds and uh, actually 18 Delta, I was driving across country back to San Diego, stopped home, and just gave her mom a call just to see how she was doing. And uh, she uh, ended up calling me back and she was recently divorced. And uh, we just sort of picked it up right where we left it off. I mean, and we knew like this is supposed to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Um, so I guess, so that was, that was uh, post buds, right? Yeah. But there, there was a window from the time that you joined uh, and actually got a spot at buds. There was a couple of years in there that, that you were with uh, the Marines at, at Pendleton or? Uh, Camp Lejeune. Lejeune. Yeah. What, uh, can you kind of synopsize the, the time there and what that was like? Um, it, it was, it was awesome. I mean, it was, I was with a, uh, grunt battalion one eight, um, uh, as a corpsman. So basically the Marines don't have their own medics and. Which is probably a good thing. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, love you know, Marines, but goddamn. Um, yeah. I mean, they're, I, I love the Marines. I, that's pretty much who raised me in the military. I mean, I definitely loved the structure. Um, you know, they don't mess around. It was, it was almost like, uh, it, pre it prepared me for buds better than anything else because, you know, in buds, you know, you get up at five in the morning, you have the room inspections. That's everyday Marine life. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's five in the morning PTs, um, and just sort of, I was always, uh, trying to, I guess, prove myself to them. Um, and they, they loved it. So if, if you are like keeping up with them and actually surpassing them, surpassing them on certain stuff, they will like hold you in the highest regard and they take care of you. Um, and that's pretty much, I made some really, really close friends there. Uh, and, um, I mean, they're, they're just a awesome breed. Um, and how, uh, uh where was it like two years that you spent there? Uh, four, four years. Mm -hmm. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Did you do uh, one or two deployments while you were there? Uh, two deployments. So uh, one pre-9-11, um, I did a Mew, uh, pretty much just hit all sorts of ports, uh, did a lot of training, um, different countries, and then uh, 9-11 happened, and we did another Mew. Um, and one eight, we ended up going into Iraq for a short stint, and then uh, we off, we got uh, sent to Liberia, uh, Monrovia, when that was going on. Um, for for the civilian asshole listener that thinks that you just meowed like a cat and doesn't know what a mew is, can you just give oh. a, give a Marine Expeditionary Unit like what that really means? What, yeah. What it is? So it's pretty much the the Marines, and I'm not even know if I'm going to explain it properly, but they go, you know, they go on a ship. Uh, it's pretty much three or four ships that uh, just deploy out uh, into the ocean and they're pretty much on standby for anything that goes down um, in that area or whatever area they're floating around in. Um, and they're just ready to go at any yeah. at a moment's notice. Yeah. That's always good. I mean, I know that, that I've got a lot of listeners that, you know, have never been in the military and, and some guests come on here, um, you know, and drop acronyms left and right. And they're like, <laughs> I have no idea what the fuck they're talking yeah. about. But uh, I, I'm still got to work yeah. on that and explaining stuff. Yeah. Um, all right, so you do that, and then at what point did you kind of get the slot or find out that you were going to Buds, and how did that pan um, So that was a huge process as well. So I always knew I wanted to go to Buds the whole time. Um, I would, I was completely like 100% focused that four years. Um, I was always requesting, you know, volunteering to go to schools to try and help me prepare. I ended up going to the uh, Marine Corps Combat Swimmer Instructor Course, which is a kick in the balls Um where you, you pretty much uh, become an instructor and you certify all Marines and uh, their swim quals. Uh, and then I got the chance to go to Marine Corps Sniper School. Um, I was told, you know, I wouldn't get the uh, credit for it, but I was like, what way to better prepare for this job? And then um, meanwhile, like for that four years, I was taking the screener over and over and I was passing it every time. It just, they would not let me go. I, I needed four years there um and also by the time it was my uh, when it was my time to rotate out you know they were also denying they wanted me to stay um and that's typical um but uh it was it took this one chief who showed up at the uh battalion checked in um looked at the roster and saw that i had screened multiple times and he was like why isn't this guy going um and he marched me right down to PSD and got me orders. I mean, and I was, and truth be told, I was about to give up. Um, I thought it wasn't going to happen. I was getting frustrated. But this guy, uh, I mean, he turned my career around by just giving me those orders. Yeah. yeah. Throughout that four-year stint in the Marines, did were, were there ever instances of 
disciplinary action or getting in trouble or there or was the the structure that they had did that kind of give you what you needed contrasted to your high school time and all that um yeah i mean i definitely you know got in a little bit of trouble there uh the um it was uh in my state platoon we had this uh oic who um was in charge and the way it works in a state platoon, which is a sniper platoon um, in the battalion, they put a just regular officer. He has no, he he doesn't know what a sniper does or whatever, but they're just like, you're in charge of this. Um, the guy was a jackass, uh, just completely just inept and not qualified for the job and also had a chip on his shoulder. Uh, because I was in the Navy, he was always, you know, ragging on me. It was, you know, stuff that really didn't bother me but uh uh one instance that happened is we went on liberty we were in norway doing cold weather training and uh he got pretty drunk with all of us and started uh running his mouth to me um the platoon actually told him that they were going to work him over if he kept it up he got pretty embarrassed by that and on the way home he uh i was <laughs> eating a burger out of from burger king and he snatched it out of my hand and started eating it um I open hand smacked him, took it back, and then he came back to my tent when we got back and ordered me to the um, jock where he told me he was going to fight me. Um, it's an odd way to do that. It was, and he was, you know, and he was intoxicated. Um, he brought me to the jock. There was a lot of senior enlisted and senior officers there, and he pretty much told them the same thing, like, I'm going to beat the shit out of this kid. Um and they all dispersed. They were like, okay, we don't want to be part of this. He called the uh, battalion aid station. This is this had to be like one in the morning and was like, I'm about to bring a uh, body down. Um, I started getting real nervous. I was like, this guy's crazy. And uh, But he was ordering me to stay. I was like, all right, roger that. Um, we went outside and I beat the shit out of him. Um, the uh, next day I, was, I had to go see the colonel. Um, the only thing that saved me was that he... This guy had done this, you know, told these senior officers and uh, senior enlisted that he was going to do this to me. And they're like, because of that, you know, you're good to go. Um, you're following orders, but you did strike an officer. Um, so, yeah, I got in trouble for that. But then, no, I'd really had no other disciplinary actions yeah. uh, before that. Yeah. So you go to BUDS. Yeah. Um, and what, what class were you in? I uh, started off uh, 251, finished 252. Got uh, rolled at yeah. pool comp. Um, you know, we've had a, a number of team guys, I won't get too in the weeds on, on the Bud's experience, but was there anything that kind of surprised you good or bad? Uh, something was easier or harder than you thought, or, or what, what's just kind of the, the summary of your Bud's experience? It's the uh, best time I never want to have again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a big fucking uh, amen. Yeah. Like it's, I, since my, uh, process to get to Bud's was so frustrating and, I think when I got there, I was just like happy to be there. So there was nothing. I mean, every beat down, every little thing, I was just like, yeah, this is what I want. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got rolled at pool comp. Um, that obviously was like a setback, but I knew, you know, I was going to make it um, a second go. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was everything I, I thought it was going to be. Um, you know, you can't, uh, nobody can recreate Hell Week like we do. Oh, um, no. That's a... Uh, even when I was a first phase instructor, putting guys through, I was like, dude, this is the most epic evolution yeah. in the military. No, for sure it is. Yeah, being an instructor is a neat peek behind that curtain that uh, 
that you know having been through it and now seeing the other side is, is a pretty pretty unique experience and one that i know you know the the time that i spent there i'll i'll always you know look fondly on but uh the thing that that i guess i'm curious about and, I, and i'm sure you know a lot of listeners are is that you know from from the time that you you came in until now you know was there was there ever you know kind of a an indicator or you know an element of of your career up until that point that uh you know that had any elements of um you know foreshadowing in terms of what what may transpire later down the road or or did it seem pretty cookie cutter career wise no it was cookie cutter career wise i and that's that's the crazy thing is uh you know whatever this whole past two years i've there was no indicators i mean i was you know i'm I'm not going to call myself some stellar operator but i had a pretty decent reputation um and i was actually like excelling yeah um you know i i was just going you know going through the the uh whole wickets of you know team guy life uh doing platoon after platoon um you know i tried out for green team um that you know didn't make it through there uh but did you actually go to it and all that? Yeah, yeah. I did. Uh, got dropped at the CQC portion, and then I actually continued to try and screen to go back. Um, I was told that I could come back, but I would have to, you know, wait a year or so because I screened two weeks after I got dropped. Um, at that point, I was at first phase uh, as an instructor, and um, I was I did not want to wait on shore command anymore. Um, so I was given the opportunity to jump onto Team Seven and go to Afghanistan again, and took that and from there i just sort of excelled in the leadership positions at team seven um after the the afghan platoon i did my lpo and then i was told i could do a platoon chief um and that was a decision point whether do my platoon chief or go back to green team and i stuck with the platoon chief but um yeah there was i had didn't get in any trouble um you know yeah so so i guess backing up you graduate buds. What was your first command? Was it SDV two? No, uh, team one. Team one. Okay. Yep. Did you go to SDV two? No. Okay. As always, Wikipedia has got a bunch of fucking incorrect <laughs> oh, shit in there. Oh, but, I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. Um, pretty comical. Yeah. I like the, yeah, the nickname, the blade. Like did uh, anybody call you the fucking blade? So I got that nickname, my first platoon. I was a new guy. Um, and just out of, you know, joking around they just came up with it uh because i you know i mean every team guy carries a knife on him but uh i got that nickname from uh the uh the, we were in 18 delta and we were at a bar and it was a biker bar um they were having their little rally there and there was probably like six of us in there and they definitely didn't you know did not want us in there um which i completely understood um I had actually gone up to the president of that biker gang and was like, Hey, you know, do you want us to leave? This is obviously your bar. Um, he's like, no, you guys just be cool. Um, and it did not end up well. They definitely, uh, some of the guys wanted to get in a tussle that on their end, um, they ended up jumping one of our guys, um, knocking him out, breaking him, breaking his orbital. And uh, I, um, was trying to drag him out and getting hit over the head at the same time. And I pulled out my knife and sort of like, you know, backed up everybody. And from there it was, you know, all of the blade. And yeah. so it was like a running joke. Um, but that after my, that's only like a close personal friends from my first platoon that called me that, um, that did not carry on. Yeah. 
Is that something that was uh, used against you in the, in the court? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, and the only reason it was is my best, one of my best friends who was in my first platoon um, as a Christmas gift gave me a, a Yeti a coffee mug and he had inscribed blade on it, yeah. you know, because from back then and yeah. the guys that had accused me had saw me drinking out of it and they were, they just used, it was more just a like, oh, oh we can pile fun. this on to yeah. make it look, you know, like he's a criminal. Sure. Um, all right. So you go to team one first right out of buds. Um, and how much time did you spend there? And, and if you could just kind of chronologically walk through from, from your first command, uh, obviously you kind of already, already did parts of it, but just, you know, to get kind of the, the step-by-step of, of your career from sure. as soon as you graduated to, to present. Um, okay. So yeah. I graduated buds, uh, did the, uh, Fort Benning jump school SQT and then went right to, uh, 18 Delta, uh, the, uh, medical school. That, That's the, uh, the army medical school for yeah. those listening. Yep. And from there checked into team one. Uh, did two platoons at Team 1, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Then checked into first phase as an instructor. Um, and like I said, uh, spent about a year, a little over there. Um, tried to go to green team. And then jumped onto Team 7. Uh, did the Afghan deployment there. And then uh, went and did the Cree, the crisis response element platoon um, in UAE. And then platoon chief to back to Iraq, uh, to Missoula. And so with, with all of those platoons and deployments, um, I mean, it sounds like they're pretty much all combat deployments. Yeah. Near, uh, the UAE one was, you know, not, uh, yeah. The crisis response, yeah, I guess, more standby, standby. But, but all, all the other ones were, uh, were combat deployments to either Iraq or Afghanistan in, in those deployments, um, I'm assuming that, you know, if I'm just doing the math right of thinking of the window of time you were there, I'm I'm assuming that there were probably some that were way more busy than others or or were they all kind of the same way or what, how would you, uh, um, I would say they were all busy in their own way. Um, you know, obviously over time, you know, the way we were conducting warfare over there had changed, but, uh, you know, my Deployment to Iraq, it was very all DA heavy, um, direct action, you know, hitting houses, um, just awesome time. And then Afghanistan is a completely different beast. Um, we were out doing disruption ops. And uh, yeah, that one was super busy. That was probably one of my better deployments. Um, but the, uh, yeah, they were all, I would say they're all pretty equal um, in combat. And there's always, you know, you got your lulls on deployment when you're, sort of sitting around for a couple of weeks. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I was, I feel pretty blessed with the career I had, um, you know, cause that it's doesn't happen for everybody and it's not people's fault. It's just sort yeah. of a roll of the dice. Yeah. And so in all of these platoons up until the last one, excuse me, were there ever any occurrences, instances where, um, something happened where there was a grievance or uh, any fellow platoon mates, um, you know, accused you of anything that was, you know, below board of, of what the the expected rules of engagement were, or the the, the protocols and and uh, statutes that we as as Navy SEALs live by. Uh, were were there any issues with anybody prior to the last deployment? Not one. Not one. No, I uh, there's never any issues in my previous deployments. Uh, as a matter of fact, I. Always, you know, thought I excelled. I was always trying to prove myself to my peers. You know, it's all about peer evaluation when you're in the teams and just trying yeah. to be worthy of 
being around those guys. And, uh, you know, I had a pretty solid reputation um, yeah. up to this last platoon. Were, were there any instances uh, outside of deployment, you know, the workup or the, the stateside time where there were any um, behavioral uh instances where you got in trouble or, or had any had any issues with the command no not a single one so I, I think that's something that um you know again just just looking at it as a bystander of of not knowing you you know in, in the community and having never worked together and, and now i mean shit i've been out for a decade you know seeing what's what's painted versus you know what mm-hmm. what's out there you know what what the reality is is that there's there's a pretty you know, heavy perception that, uh, that you have a, a pattern or a history of that. Oh yeah. And I've heard, it's funny, uh, more guys I run into now, especially like, you know, team guys, um, they tell me what's been put out about me and, it's, you know, and that's coming from senior leadership. Um, you know, I've heard everything from like, I've had multiple DUIs to, I mean, it's just stuff that's completely not true. I don't have any of that on my record and I, it's, and I, I don't know why stuff that stuff is said about me. I mean, I they're trying to construct a narrative about me so people think a certain way. But yeah, I've never been in trouble like that. Uh, and it's yeah, it's it sucks that uh, there's people out there trying to put that narrative out about me. But that's just not true. Yeah, to me, that's an important component to to get out there. You know, because that that makes a difference. Uh, however, going into this last deployment, uh, which was uh, the battle for Mosul, correct? Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of the uh, in, the incident took place, where uh, where everything kind of got into trouble. If you could, I'm, I'm what I'm curious about, especially you know having been a SEAL and done multiple platoons from from the time you started, because this was your your eighth platoon, basically, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, like eighth deployment. Yeah. Um, so you know you've done lots of platoons, lots of workups, you know, been with, you know, probably some of the same groups of guys, new groups of guys, whatever, different commands from the, from the time that you got into that platoon, was there anything different from the start before, you know, you ever went on deployment, like during the workup, were there, were there red flags, were there things that stuck out as like, wait a minute, like something doesn't seem right. Like, or or did you guys gel pretty well? and, And it seemed like a pretty standard, standard workup. You know, it's, there was definitely, uh, I had to do a lot of thinking back um, after all this, especially when I was sitting there in a uh, jail cell. I was like, how did this, you know, come to this? Um, The platoon I took over was rated the worst platoon, the prior rotation. Um, It was Alpha Platoon. They didn't do so hot uh, during ULT and just, you know. And ULT is for the oh, work up. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> again. Yeah, no, I, um, I only know it because I catch hell every time. Like, yeah. I don't know what the fuck you were saying. So, yeah, the, pretty much the training cycle up to deployment. Um, they just weren't, they didn't do so hot. I didn't know any of those guys, but that was a word around the team. Um, I was told I was taken over that platoon um, after the uh, UAE deployment. So, in my mind, I was like, okay, um, you know, these guys didn't do so hot prior um, as the platoon chief. I'm going to, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't say whip them into shape, but sort of, you know, get them on par with where they're supposed to be. And I wanted to, you know, obviously like every other platoon chief have the best platoon at the team. Um, so when I took over, you know, I, I implemented uh, some training uh, during, there's a professional development phase before you start work up um, when guys are going to schools, but I would implement, you know, two, two times a week, um, going and we were doing 
just the basic CQC, um, post-pre-assault procedures, everything to get us ready for workup. Uh, there was a little bit of complaints during that. Um, guys were like, this is our free time, which in my mind, I'm like, that's, there's no free time. We're, we train for war. This is our, uh, skill craft, you know, skill. And, uh, you only get good at it by constantly, you know, mastering your craft for hours. So, but you know, there was really no, uh, big red flags during workup. The guys, the guys were definitely a different personality from, uh, my previous platoons. They were, um, not, and maybe it's because I was an out, you know, outsider. These guys, a lot of these senior guys had been together for three platoons already. Um, and I was a, you know, platoon chief coming in, but there were the cohesiveness wasn't there as far as like on the outside of training. Um, Cause usually before, you know, platoons will get together for barbecues or, you know, to build that camaraderie. Like I tried to have that a couple of times at my house or, you know, we, or we put it together at a restaurant and it was almost like you're pulling teeth to get these guys together. Why do you suppose that is? I mean, did, did you get the, you know how sometimes like you can tell, I mean, some people are fucking oblivious when they're that guy, you know, there's been instances where like you can just tell somebody doesn't like you or, you know, whatever. Was there <clears> any of that? Like, did, did, did you feel like, you're the hard, the hard ass new chief that's making shit harder than they're used to. And now they're despising you for it. And, you know, or, or was there none of that? And it, and it just seemed like it was lost on, on everything. There was definitely two guys. And this is, I mean, this is pretty much the gist of how this all happened. Uh, there's two East senior East sixes, um, Dalton Tolbert and Dylan delay. They despise me from the get go. Um, for, I don't know what reasons. I mean, I could probably, you know, that so when i took over this platoon they were constantly talking shit about their previous leadership their previous platoon chief and previous lpo in terms of him being weak or being a dick being weak okay. being weak and being incompetent um which you know they tell me all, all sorts of stories um and i you know i was like okay whatever um this is not how it's going to be this time i just don't like these guys or i don't think these guys being like like told what to do uh, and then it was definitely, they were, they could never be wrong. So we'd be training. And if you pointed something out, like, Hey, you screwed up there. And, uh, they just, there was that type of attitude. Like instead of taking cr criticism on board, it was like, well, it's not my fault. It's yours or it's somebody else's. Um, and I, these two guys definitely didn't like me from the get go, but they didn't, I mean, they were professional about it as far as like not showing any signs of it to my face, um, mm -hmm. but behind the scenes. And I came to find out this later, they were pretty much spreading, uh, toxicity into the platoon, you know, like, oh, we don't like him. Like, you know, and they, they'd find little nuances about me that they didn't like and sort of embellish them to try and get the platoon to take their side. Um, but that really didn't blow up until the deployment, uh, once I was on deployment, and this is where um, things really shifted, is I had an LPO who was a rock star. Um, me and him were pretty tight. He uh, picked up Chief right before we deployed, and our sister platoon, um, their platoon chief ended up getting shot in the chest and got sent home. So I shifted him over to that platoon to take over. Once I did that, that's when uh, Craig Miller was next in line, and he was peers with uh, these two guys that I mentioned, Dylan Delay and Dalton Tolbert. 
And I really don't think he, um, he just wasn't, that didn't act as an LPO, you know, the LPO and for people listening is sort of like, he's a middle management guy, I guess, and civilian equivalent, but he's in charge of middle management. Um, he is like the, <clears throat> to me, you know, manager is kind of the best. Yeah. So he keeps the pulse of the platoon. And then if there's something wrong, he comes to the platoon chief and is like, Hey, guys are either bothered by this or they're questioning this. And then, you know, you deal, you deal with it with the LPO, like, okay. Um, and either fix the problem and, uh, or tell the guys like, you know, this yeah. is the way we're doing it. That never happened. Craig Miller would never come to me say anything. Um, he just kept, he pretty much joined these guys on the hate train. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest problem here. Um, and, uh, that carried on through the deployment. Um, and I really didn't catch wind of it till the very end. Um, and that's when we, we sort of had it out. Yeah. One thing just, uh, real quick for, for the listener, so that when you hear LPO chief, AOIC, OIC, so to give you the, like the best analogy I can come up with off the cuff so that you understand kind of th that rank structure and how it relates is think of a restaurant, right? And you've got a, a fleet of, of servers, you know, those are the platoon members, uh, whoever the manager is, is the LPO. The general manager would be the chief. And then the CEO, of the the, the owner of the restaurant would be the, the OIC. And so, you know, that that first manager or LPO is really kind of managing all of the the servers, the staff, uh, in this case, the the platoon mates and, and doing all kind of the heavy lifting. And then the general manager is is directly over that manager that's overseeing everything else. And he's kind of the liaison, the go between the CEO of the, of the restaurant owner of the restaurant and, and the staff. And that's, it's kind of that bridge. That's the best way I can kind of explain it. But that way, you know, as you hear him mention these positions, it kind of makes sense of, of realistically who they are in, in this uh, hierarchy. But, um, going back to, um, one of the things that you said that made me think or, or have a question about, they were talking shit about their prior chief of him being weak. Um, did you guys ever have kind of a, uh, come to Jesus meeting of saying, look, obviously you guys had a weak chief. I'm not that guy. I'm coming in here. Like for, for me, I'm trying to put myself in their shoes. Like if we had, if I was in a platoon as an East senior E six and, and had a weak chief and now a strong one came in, like I, I would have thought that they would have been more welcoming of that. Do you, do you know why they weren't or why there was such friction between you guys kind of right out of the gate? There was, so like I said, there was no, um, there was just those two guys. There was really no friction between me and the rest of the platoon. Actually, um, a lot of these guys were happy that I was their platoon chief. Um, I had a pretty decent reputation up to that point. And, uh, you know, they, they were all stoked to have me. They, they knew that, um, I wasn't the type, I didn't mess around. I was all about, you know, getting the job done, getting, you know, getting the guys ready for deployment. They knew I was gunning for to go um, to the place where we'd see the most combat. Um, and I made that, you know, known from the start. I was like, this is my goal. Um, and we will be the best platoon. Um, so there was the rest of the guys, there was no friction. They, I think because, and I, I don't want to say the last platoon chief was weak cause I don't know the guy, but that's the way they sort of described him. I think because they were so used to that style of leadership. And then I came in with a sort of like, no bullshit style. Um, you know, this is the way we're doing things. Um, it was sort of a shock, I guess, a little bit to them. And, you know, there's always, and, you know, and I'll go, there's always stuff as a leader 
that you can work on. Um, you know, and I think back now there's little minuscule stuff that I could have done better as far as communication and sort of like explaining to them, like, this is the way why we're doing this. But in my mind, I was like, you know, no shit. Like, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and I'll tell you, there, there's a specific instance, which I go back to, uh, where I think I could have, it might've changed the tides, but, uh, we were at land warfare doing training and the LPO or no, uh, not, it wasn't LPO at the time. Craig Miller had come up to me, um, after we had done some runs and it was during the summer and everybody was hot and tired and we were doing a great job. And he was like, I think you should pull the platoon in and tell them what a great job they're doing. And really you know, pat their backs. And, and I sort of looked at them and I was like, why would I do that? Like, we're, are we getting hit on anything? And he's like, no. I was like, is anybody yelling at us? No. Well then continue on. Like, you know, I'm not going to pull everybody in and tell them they're doing a great job. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained covering ufos cryptids conspiracies and the paranormal real people real encounters so come with us on the journey into the unknown ufo chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps i'll see you soon thinking back on that now maybe that was a wrong decision maybe i could have given him some positive affirmation uh but that's just the way I was raised in the teams and not saying it's right or wrong, but you know, if you're doing a good job, then no one's probably going to say anything to you. Um, you know, but that's just the type of, I think mentality, the the difference now, um, where I think a lot of these guys want to be told they're doing great. Um, which I get it, uh, but I just wasn't raised that way. Yeah. No, I, I'm tracking hundred percent. I mean, to me, I, I can see both sides and that, um, I know from dog training, like there's why well, you, you know, telling a dog that he's done a good job, there's a way to do that. Obviously it's different than saying, Hey, you did a great job. He doesn't fucking get that, but you can give, uh, you know, affirmation via, uh, either rewards or, or affection or, or doing it a certain way that, that kind of relays to the dog that what he's doing is correct. And, and you're happy with it. And I know from a dog standpoint, like, you know, my, my training methodology and philosophy has come about 180 degree out because I was raised similarly in the SEAL teams and that, you know, it's like there, there's a minimum standard level of expectation that's basically flawless, you yeah. know, and, and anything less than perfect is you're a fucking shit bag, you know, and, <laughs> uh, and, and if you are perfect, then, well, then congratulations, you're doing your fucking job exactly. and you can stay, you know, and, and so I, I get that aspect of it too. And I think, Two two things. One is that psychologically, like unquestionably, it, it is very powerful for uh, leadership to, um, you know, not stroke people's ego, but, you know, confirm that, that somebody's doing a good job when they are doing a good job. It's important, obviously, not to do that if they're not. 
but I also think we certainly live in a different time where the, the problem, I think, is that that, that, that has kind of now become an expectation and not, you know, a, a desired result. You know, and, and to me, yeah. there's a big fucking difference between that. You know, when you expect to be told you're doing a good job, irrespective of whether or not you are, now you, you turn into an entitled fucking prick. And I, I see that in all of society. But on the other side of the token, there's still that element of if somebody is doing a good job, you, you should tell them because it is powerful. Exactly. But, I think there's, yeah, there's a fine line um, of when to do that and when not to. Yeah. Uh, I guess, you know, to me hearing that, it's like, fuck, would, would that have you know, really made that big of a difference. I mean, who, who knows? I mean, you could, but yeah. you know, maybe if you had started doing that, you know, on a regular basis, every time they, they did a good job, you know, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. I, I still, you know, for me that the thing that's hard to kind of wrap my mind around again is that, you know, if these guys are bitching about a weak chief and a strong one comes in, like why, why do these two individuals in particular still have, have the heartburn with you? I mean, is, have you, have you ever been able to kind of figure that out? And that's where I think, you know, these guys, um, especially these two, uh, Tolbert and Delay, they just have this, and and I'm not going to blanket statement, you know, like millennial mindset, because I think that, you know, that you're pretty much, you know, saying a whole generation is like this. But these guys definitely had this very entitled mindset to where, you know, nobody could tell them anything. They didn't do anything wrong. They thought, you know, everything, everything they did was perfect. Uh, so, and, you know, to, for them to be complaining about a weak chief before, and then now you have a chief that's actually, you know, running the show and, and we got, you know, the number one platoon out of the team. I mean, we did really awesome. So you went from worst to first. You yeah. Coming in. yeah. And it's not, and I'm not saying that's all due to me. It was all a team effort. Uh, it just, it blows my mind. It was like, they just couldn't be content um, with anything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was always, everything was always somebody else's fault. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty much what it, it comes down to with this, these whole false allegations. Um, were, were there any instances with anybody else in the platoon? Did, did the platoon get in trouble or were there any uh, of your guys that got in trouble during workup or deployment? Um, yeah. So, you, you know, you always have your little instances uh, going through workup. Uh, right before we deployed, um, one of my newer guys um, actually... My LPO um, got jumped um, outside of Danny's. Um, they were coming out and there was. Fucked by who? By like four or five guys. I mean, just beat the living shit out of them. I wasn't there, um, but one of the new guys ran out and saw what was happening and just like a new guy should, tried to protect his LPO. Um, the guy circled him. He ended up pulling out a knife and was like, you know, if you guys come at me, this is something, you know, this is going to happen. Um, they called the cops and he ended up getting thrown in jail for pulling a knife out. Um, Do you know who these guys were? Like, no, because I mean, Coronado is a pretty small. Yeah, it's <clears throat> no, they were, I think they were, I mean, they were young, um, like college kids or maybe a little bit older, but we never found out. It was like pretty much right before we deployed. Um, so I went and uh, bailed that new guy out of jail the next day. Cause I got the call that night. Um, and did our, you know, I did my best to try and protect him as much as possible. Um, and he, he ended up being okay. Uh, but that was pretty much the only incident that happened. And that's, that's the other difference, um, which you can take this as a good or bad thing. Um, these guys weren't like any, my previous platoons, uh, you know, we'd go on training trips, guys go out and drink, um, stuff happens, you know, 
bar fights or whatever. It's just the lifestyle that I grew up in. These guys were definitely more stay in their rooms, play video games, uh, just chill out, which is fine. Um, which I, I remember I was describing to my master chief cause he asked me and I was like, well, these guys definitely aren't Liberty risks. So as a platoon chief, <laughs> I'm good with that. You know, yeah. like if that's the way they are, but it also, you just lose that aspect of, uh, platoon camaraderie, like going out and everybody hanging out. Um, so that was a huge difference, yeah. but yeah, there was real, no, no trouble. Um, so you, you didn't have any like official face-to-face -face trouble with these two guys that would later come to no not at all okay all right so you go on deployment um was it a, a typical combat deployment obviously there was a, a significant battle you know for, for mazul that was probably maybe a little different in orders of magnitude than what you were used to is that a safe assumption this was a completely different um deployment as far as my previous ones um so we were not the main effort we uh, did AAA, which is advised, assist, and accompany um, a partner force, which was the uh, emergency response division, um, this Iraqi unit. And uh, pretty much our job was to go out with them every day um, and pretty much advise, assist, and accompany. And we, it was pretty much, I think it was one of my best deployments because, dude, we, we, laid, we laid siege to this city and it was just savage warfare um because america were saying you know we're not the main effort it was pretty much on the iraqi partner forces to clear now they don't have the same rules as we do um you know more morally ethically or whatever um but they were getting the job done and they definitely got it done in ways that i don't you know America would not agree with. Um, but then you also were fighting ISIS, which was a just savage enemy. Um, and the atrocities I think we saw on that deployment on a pretty, pretty regular basis were definitely uh, different as well. I mean, there'd be instances where we'd watch ISIS just gun down women and children in front, you know, 400 yards from us, um, and we couldn't do anything about it. You know, you, you go in, I mean, the the city itself was just it was bombed out, trashed, and, you know, you go into buildings and you'd be stepping over dead bodies on a daily basis. Well, you know, maybe see some little kids that were still on the ground. Um, and so <clears throat> that in itself was definitely different as far as seeing those kind of atrocities on a regular basis. And then just, it was a very chaotic environment. Um, it was not an NSW mission. Um, it's more conventional. So we were just driving out during the day. Um, no surprise at all. It was like, here we are. Uh, and then just trying to, as a platoon chief and also my OIC, um, it took us about a couple of weeks to like really figure out how we're going to like work this beast as far as helping clear this city. Um, and we, we came up with a pretty good, um, you know, plan on how we would do it. Um, and so, and the other, the other element to this is we, senior leadership would show up and give briefs every once in a while. And this was, uh, you know, it'd be from NSW senior leadership and we were working for MARSOC at the time. And they would say, they put this idea out. They were like, this isn't your fight. You're here to just advise and assist, you know, this isn't worth dying for. So don't like be get, a hero, be a hero, get too involved. 
Just real quick. Uh, so you guys were actually working for Marine Special Operations Command while you were there? Like yeah. they were in charge of everything? So we were detached from Team 7 uh, ourselves in another platoon, and we fell under MARSOC. Okay. That seems like an odd odd relationship that they had them in charge there. Do you know what? It was because just the uh, the AO um, that the MARSOC was in charge of. Yeah. Um, one thing I'm curious about, so in a lot of these instances where you guys are seeing these atrocities and seeing a lot of dead bodies, including children, et cetera, in the assist uh, portion of that AAA mission that you guys are doing, what was the what was the, the kind of the left and right flank in which you guys were bound to either be in or out of in that assist portion? Like how how much of of these gunfights and, and actual combat action as an advisory board essentially are you guys actually taking place in so the rule was that we were not allowed on the front line so we would have to be and the the distance would change throughout deployment so when we started off it was uh we could not be 800 meters or or closer to the front line um yeah there with a laser range finder making sure that you... all our job <laughs> when we went out there and this is where we sort of had to figure out how we were going to attack this beast so like there was really no, there was no uh, um, training or anything like, hey, this is how this job is done. It was, we showed up and we hit the ground running and they were like, here's your partner force, go out. So the first couple of weeks we were going out and setting up, you know, we'd fly the UAV and, um, you know, look for targets and we'd have a mortar set up, but it was mainly, you know, looking for targets to drop ordnance on and, uh, you know, telling, telling the uh, Iraqi partner force like, hey, there's guys in this building or, or the Iraqi partner force would pass on to us as they were clearing through, like we're taking fire from this building and we would have to PID where they're taking fire from. But at the same time, ISIS also had drones and they were flying them over us. And as soon as we'd see a drone over our heads, we would just start taking mortars, uh, left and right. Um, and the drones also had, uh, they had capabilities of dropping grenades on us and everything. So that we went on for a couple of weeks like that of just going out, trying to set up and then getting mortared all day. Um, and sort of we were in a defensive posture. Um, the Iraqis definitely did not respect the fact that we weren't taking part in the fight. Um, and then there would be a lull in their clearance because we weren't, you know, helping out. I decided to take it while well, myself and the OIC were like, listen, we're not a defensive unit. We are an offensive unit so let's set ourselves up in an offensive posture instead of sitting here all day taking mortars so i split we'd have a main element that would shoot mortars and then i would push up a little bit closer and set up sniper ops and we would take up the uh, javelins goose offs and sniper rifles and we really started affecting the battlefield a lot more uh, doing it that way and also the iraqis were super stoked that we were doing this and their clearance uh, moved a lot faster that way. Was there any pushback or conflict confrontation with Marsoc for you guys doing that? Or did they sign no. off on you doing that? Oh, not at all. They yeah. knew. Yeah. They, they actually were like, you guys are kicking ass. Yeah. Um, this is awesome. So um, it was totally uh, condoned on their end. Yeah, yeah. There was definitely some, sometimes where we would, uh, you know, request to move up a little bit closer and it would get denied. Um, just like, nope, that's too close. Um, but we, like any good team guy, I would find a way to, you know, push it just enough to like start, you know, getting effects. Yeah. Um, 
Marsock had no problem with it. The guys, this is where some of the guys, especially the two I mentioned, were not cool with some of it. Um, they were like, they would rather just sit back um, and do the defensive game and, you know, just have it as like a regular nine to five, go out, shoot motors or, or do nothing and then go back home. Um, but so, that wasn't brought up to me during, that's where that, the toxicity started spreading on the deployment. And so they, they had a problem with it and they were just kind of inner grumblings uh, amongst the platoon. That, do you know what, what angle they were taking? Was it a, this is too dangerous. This isn't our mission. I mean, what, like, what were they complaining about? They were telling um, a lot of the younger enlisted guys that, uh, you know, what I was doing was dangerous, um, that, you know, I was putting them in harm's way for no reason, um, you know, that somebody was going to get killed. Uh, and it was, and this was, like I said, all behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea this was going on. But, you know, in the end, no one got killed. I brought everyone home alive. Um, and that's we're actually the first platoon to do that in like three rotations where somebody didn't go out there and die. I mean, we, the OIC and I always had everything planned out. We had, you know, we wouldn't just pick spots willy nilly. We'd have as much, as much risk mitigated as possible. And we had a contingency plans. Um, I think this, it was just them finding reasons to get, you know, guys to go against me. Uh, so, I mean, here's, here's one, one thing in, in trying to kind of play devil's advocate is yeah. that, um, you know, if, if that's their take, and this is one where it's, it's kind of a bigger picture decision is that, you know, depending on what the mission is or not, or, or whatever, is that, you know, some, some may say, well, that's not our mission to, you know, to push that envelope. And, and if any of our guys, I mean, you know, luckily they, nothing happened, but if something did, like, is it worth it? And obviously that's a 30,000 foot view, you know, perspective, you could say that for the entire scope of the war. But, um, you know, I guess I'm curious, like, was, were those kind of elements ever brought up or was it all completely, um, you know, under, under the guise of what you, you and the OIC were aware of? Like, I mean, how did you end up finding out about that? And, and, um, did you ever talk to them about oh, this yeah. is why we're doing what we're doing? Oh yeah. I had multiple uh, meetings with them on the deployment. When I, once I started finding out, you know, there were some grumblings and this is where I had brought up before that Craig Miller was not bringing this to my attention, which as an LPO, he should have right away been like, Hey, these are the concerns the guys are having. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with firsthand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Um, and I would have addressed them uh, sooner, but I actually found out about them through a uh, text message. Um, the J.O. that was living with me um, you know, had a phone. I asked if I could use it to uh, call one of the guys to tell him to bring some gear up. Um, once I like pulled up the guy's name, I saw a text thread with my name all over it. And obviously I read it and it was definitely a lot of grumblings. Uh, pretty much what I just explained, like, you know, he's too aggressive. He's too dangerous. Uh, one of us is going to get killed. We don't want to go out anymore. Um, so after that I did, I had a, uh, meeting with the E6s first. 
um, told them to bring my their concerns up to me. Um, the concerns were that I was working them too hard, uh, that they didn't have time to work out, um, that, you know, they asked about some, some tactical questions and I had an answer, you know, for everything. I was like, this is why we're doing this. Um, this is the job. And if your, you know, intent or, um, whatever is to work out during this deployment, I don't think your priorities are straight. Like this is the mission. Um, and I realize it's not a, you know, NSW mission. We're going out during the day, but this is the job we were given. And, uh, you know, I told them that I had guys banging down the door trying to get in, trying to augment us because they knew <clears throat> we were one of the only platoons really getting after it. Um, I told them, I was like, you know, you, if you want to go, I can switch you out at any moment. Guys would give their left and right nut to be here right now. Uh, you know, they were like, no, 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 we, you know, we want, we don't want to go. Um, and then, you know, the whole working out aspect, one of the guys, actually Dalton Tolbert was, uh, like, well, I don't have time to prepare for green team. I need to work out. And I was like, you know what? Okay. Then I will give you time to work out. And I took him off the upward for the next day. And we went out and I came back and he flipped, then he flipped it around on me and was like, well, now you're punishing me because you said that you took me off the upward because I said I wanted to work out. And I so told him, I was like, that's what you said. I'm like, it doesn't seem like you're going to be content either way. Um, then don't complain about it. Uh, I'm trying to give you what you asked for. And now you're complaining because I did. And it, that's just the, it, that's what I was dealing with. Um, you could not make them happy, uh, which I wasn't really trying to, but at the same time, I was like, you know, this is going to relieve some of this, you know, hate train. Fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just, it was tough. I, I, you know, and I didn't have, I didn't have the answer to, deal with that kind of attitude. Um, and I was also definitely mission focused, um, wasn't really paying attention to a lot of their feelings, uh, or what, you know, I guess the morale, uh, which looking back now as I, I could have done a better job at that. Um, but yeah, it, that's, it was just a tough leadership role for me. Um, but luckily, I mean, the OIC, me and the OIC were super tight. Um, he was, he was awesome. And, uh, the final meeting we had on deployment, um, I had with the guys again, um, we talked about, you know, the tactical decisions that were made and on it, they all agreed with it. I was like, you know, we weren't trained for this job. Our workup does not focus on what we're doing right now. So this is a whole new element. So we're sort of OJT in this, uh, and figuring out how we're doing it. I was like, you know, if you guys have better ideas, I'm all ears, but no one's saying anything. You know, so, um, and, you know, they all agreed to like, okay, you know, this it is what it is. This is what we're doing. And we finish out the rest of the deployment. Uh, Did you do that the entire time you were there pretty much or? Not the first couple months um, because I really didn't, I mean, I was heavily just focused on trying to figure out how we were going to clear Missoula and me and the OIC were super busy, you know, going to briefs, debriefs, and then trying to plan, um, you know, for the next day. And, you know, I just was expecting the guys were doing their job. Um, and wasn't, I didn't really hear any gripes or complaints. And like I said, until about a little after halfway is when it really started. Uh, you know, I started hearing little things here and there. And I also took it as a natural, I mean, when you're on deployment, it's not unnatural for guys to complain. Yeah. I mean, that's, you live with guys and, and we were living in real shitty conditions. Um, 
and close quarters. So to me, I was like, okay, maybe guys are just, you know, fed up or close being close to each other. And this is just a natural thing. Uh, yeah, it wasn't until uh, a little after halfway and then definitely at the end of deployment is where it got super out of control. Um, and so just for the listeners, I'm assuming a standard six month deployment. Uh, it was a little bit, it was like seven. Seven. And so, and so the first like half of it, you weren't, you were just basically planning to do what was going to take place the second half. The, no, I mean, the first half we were working, Okay, uh, but it was trying to figure out how to attack this beast, like figure out how okay. we were going to do this job. Okay. And then once we got into a rhythm, which was, you know, before the first half, we were just continuing on. And so at what point did you kind of stop doing that in, in, in the seven month process or the whole time? The whole time. Yeah. So, you know, the last month, the seventh month, we didn't do anything. So okay. Missoula was cleared. We pretty much worked straight through for six months. Um, and I do want to say this, I, I split the platoon up. Um, so we had a house back in Erbil. Um, there's a two houses back in Erbil. So I would, I didn't take the platoon out as a whole every day. So I would split the platoon up into squads. One squad would go rest and refit for a week and they could just chill out. And then they would come out and switch out for the other squad. So that way guys were getting plenty of rest or which I thought, um, and myself and the OIC stayed out the whole time. Um, uh, so after Missoula was clear, we were able to go back to those houses in Erbil and just sort of wait until we went home. Um, not a lot was going on there. It was, and I took it as a, I was like, this is a perfect time for everybody to decompress. Um, instead of decompressing, I think they really just spiraled out of control. Um, they, there was a bar, um, on the roof that, that, that was built and they were going up there every night and drinking, which, you know, I was like, I had no problem with, but I wasn't joining them because at that point, the personalities just weren't, you know, I didn't want to be around them. And I think that's where those two guys, they had gotten Craig Miller on board. And then they really started like, you know, trying to spread the hate to the platoon. Um, and even, you know, Craig Miller had called me in his room that last month and said, Hey, can I talk to you? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, listen, they, uh, the guys are saying that you said I was a real shitty LPO. And they said that you, you know, that you didn't trust me and you don't like me. That was never, those words never came out of my mouth once on deployment. Um, I told him, I was like, well, who's saying this? And he's like, well, I don't, they. I was like, okay, uh, well, that's not true, Craig. You know, I think you did a great job. Um, and I do nothing but sing your praises if somebody asks. And that's all I can tell you. Uh, but I think he had already, the, the, the well had been poisoned at that point. Um. And he wasn't the only, I had similar conversations with random guys in the platoon where it was always, they said, they told me this, um, and that they is Dalton Tolbert and Dylan Delay, which I came to find out later on. So, I mean, these guys were actively trying to, um, persuade other guys to go against me. And, uh, I mean, they got about three other guys on board and that was it. And I think that's a big misconception too, where it's been put out that my whole platoon turned on me, um. No, it was five guys out of the 24 that I had under me there um, that really did, made up these false allegations. Yeah. So, you know, in hearing kind of the the timeline, I guess the, the next logical question is the actual incident that took place. I mean, was it at the very end? Was it in the middle or or when did, did the 
the alleged incident that these guys were saying that happened when when did that uh, allegedly take place um the that was in may so that would have been a little past halfway and so I, here, here's a couple things that, that, you know, this has me thinking, and I think most people do. There's kind of twofold is one, you know, again, just being fair and, and having, you know, not known you worked with you, met with you and having been through multiple platoons and deployments. And I think most people would think, well, you know, SEALs are a certain breed and, and what, what have you. Like, it's hard to imagine, you know, even five guys all being, you know, so adamant that that you are a shitty guy that they're willing to, you know, basically put you in, in prison for the rest of your life just because they don't like you Yep. on the same token. Um, it's also hard to believe that if you have that big of an issue with a guy that it would happen and then you would continue to fight with this guy for months without having a, a problem and saying anything. And so, to me, it's like you can, I think anybody that's looking at it objectively, which unfortunately a lot of people don't, you know, and, and one of the biggest reasons why I wanted you to come on and I'm glad that you did, um, is that, you know, the, the nation has heard somebody's side, you know, yeah. they've, they've heard the, the prosecution side, they've heard the media's side, they haven't really heard your side, you know, and, and so to me that that's important, just like with most things, there's usually an extreme on both sides and it's somewhere in the middle. But can you kind of talk to both of those things and that, you know, number one is, is that, again, you know, there's an element of like, well, how do you have, you know, five platoon mates that are they're willing to testify against you? I mean, to me, that's a pretty big fucking deal and that they would be willing to do that just based off of a grudge. On the same token, if they had that big of a fucking problem, why did they continue to work with you and fight with you and not be like, dude, we're not, this guy's a fucking murderer. We're not working with him. Okay. Yeah. And that's, those are two great points. And, uh, I, I'll hit the second one first, as far as the, the, um, them, if these allegations did happen, why didn't they say something to me? Well, first off, because they didn't happen. But if people just took a step back and really looked at this, and I say it common sense wise where these guys, you know, and what was put out about me is I was just randomly shooting people, you know, willy nilly, uh, firing shots in the crowds. Um, I mean, the allegations were nuts, especially, you know, that I, I killed some little girl and an yeah. old man. Yeah. I mean, if you, so to me, you know, when I first heard these allegations, I was like, you know, first I was appalled. And then second, I'm like, okay, if I was doing this the whole deployment, why didn't somebody say something to me? Like, you know, so I was like, if, you know, if I was crazy enough to be just going out every day doing these things, nobody said a word to me about it. So in my mind, I'm like, well, then these guys are just. Well, that, that borders on complicit. Yeah. You know, like if you're standing by while somebody's, you know. And that's, that's honestly like what came out in trial was these guys had made up these allegations and lies and they couldn't, once they took the stand, I mean, they couldn't keep up with them and the jury saw right through it. I mean, literally the, the old man and the young girl were completely made up and this, so that goes into, um, after deployment, the first point to where it's like, how are these guys, you know, they made these allegations just cause they had a grudge on you and how could they, want you to go away for life in all honesty they did not want me to go away for life their allegations um escalated after deployment so after deployment they came back and made you know 
little complaints about that I was too aggressive, that my tactics were dangerous, and that I was stealing stuff. Uh, I heard this through uh, other guys at the team, that they were going around trying to spread these rumors. I called one final meeting with the platoon. This is after deployment. And uh, I was pretty pissed that uh, they, they were accusing me of stealing because I'd never been accused of that, nor would I steal from anybody. Uh, so I, I brought them all into the high bay and I was like, ranks are off. And I'm like, tell me exactly what I stole from somebody. Um, they sat there for about two minutes quiet. Nobody said a word. And I was like, come on guys. I've heard it from multiple people. I know you guys are accusing me or somebody in here is accusing me of stealing. Uh, Dalton Tolbert raised his hand and was like, well, you took a Red Bull out of the fridge at the beginning of deployment. That wasn't yours. And that was like the first allegation. Fucking Red Bull. Yeah. So I just looked at him and I was like, I I can't either confirm nor deny if I did take a Red Bull out of the fridge. That wasn't mine. It's a possibility. Um, You know, there's plenty of Red Bulls in there. I might have grabbed one. Nobody said anything to me about it. But that doesn't constitute me being a thief. I was like, please tell me there's something else. Don't Tobert again. He's the only one that talked during this. I was like, well, you owe somebody money for a haircut in here. And I was like, okay. I got one haircut on deployment that the J.O. Tom McNeil paid for. I looked at Tom McNeil. I'm like, you know what? I'm sorry I forgot to pay you back for that. I'll give you the money. He told me, oh, no, it's not a big deal. Don't worry. He was sitting off in a corner, just not saying anything. And he told me, he's like, it's not a big deal. And I was like, obviously it is. If Dalton Tolbert is speaking up for you, this this has been discussed. I was like, is there anything else that I stole? Um, Craig Miller then (laughs) said, I stole his sunglasses. And uh, I told him, I was like, well, I don't have them. Um, He's like, no, well, I have, I got them back. And I was like, well, then how did I steal them? He's like, well, I put it out that someone stole them, and all of a sudden they appeared. <laughs> I was like, that wasn't me. I don't know, you know, what to say. Those are the three main things that were brought up. But oh, and the I took power bars out of a care package, um, which to me I was like, those are care packages, and I actually am the one who ordered the care packages for the whole platoon on deployment. I had a, a company I was going through. Um, well, so that, from the thief standpoint, that's what those are. What did they? Did you address any of the? The war atrocity grievances? So this is what I'm saying. No war atrocities were brought up at all during this. And this is where the escalation begins. I told them to uh, go on with their careers, to decompress. And I was like, you know, if you continue to spread these stupid, petty rumors, you're going to ruin the good deployment that we had because we we did a good job. Uh, You know, I told them just I was going to move on with my career and that they should move on with theirs. Um, Craig Miller took it upon himself so they were angry because I had been nominated for a Silver Star, um, which I had no idea about. My OIC and Tom McNeil had both put me in for one and had been routed up. Craig Miller went to the uh, command headshed and said, I don't want him to get a Silver Star. I don't think he should pick up Senior Chief. And I was getting, uh, my next duty station was to be the SEA at uh, Trade It, which was uh, Salk. That's the senior enlisted advisor at the training detachment. Yes. <laughs> so he, those were his three uh, stipulations to the commander. Like, we don't want him to have any of that. So the command was like, well, why are you, you know, what are the complaints? Again, he was like, 
well, he stole from us and he's aggressive and, you know, he used us as bait out there. Um, the command was like, okay, how did he use you as bait? The only thing they said was, oh, I'm, he made us put a helmet on a stick and put it above a wall to see if sniper fire would come in. And the command's like, well, that's a tactic that's been used for a while. Is there anything else? No. Craig Miller continued to go back to the command about three more times. Um, and the command started getting, I think, frustrated with him. And they're like, listen, you need to drop this. Is there anything else you're not telling us? Um, Craig Miller said no. The command asked him, was there any laws of armed conflict violations? Craig Miller denied it twice. No, there's not. The command then told him, well, if there's nothing like that, there's nothing we're going to do to him. He will move on with his career. He got number one chief at the platoon. He proved himself, you know, to to go to uh, South and be the SEA. And so, in a way, the command sort of coached Craig on what to say next. Um, Craig then came back to the command about two and a half months later. Not to the command, but came back uh, to uh, the my TU, my TU commander, or my prior TU commander, and said, okay, we have something. And my TU commander's like, what is it? And he's like, um, he stabbed an ISIS prisoner. He's like, me. So... <laughs> In that two and a half months, what we came to find out is these guys had conspired via text messages, and they actually went and had meetings on how they were going to come up with this story. And when you say these guys, it was your five guys, all um, your platoon platoon guys that didn't have anything to do with the command headshed. Yeah, yeah, the guy, the five guys in my platoon. Yeah, because um, one one thing I'm curious, you, one of the things you mentioned is that they were basically coaching him on what to say next. What what makes you uh, assume or say that? I think. Well, I say that's unknowingly coaching them. So, like basically saying that's not enough. If you have a, a grievance, you better come up with something exactly more than that. or drop it. Like get out of here. Um, they came back with that. So the TU commander's like, well, then I suggest you guys call NCIS. Um, and that's where it sort of went off the rails. Uh, and Craig Mill and them didn't never intended me to go to jail or prison for life. What they wanted was for me to be sort of kicked out of the community. They did not want me in charge of training because they knew they would go through and they knew they thought in their mind that I was going to treat them different because of how they acted. They also thought that I was going to go around and spread uh, bad word about them, about what I thought about their reputations. Um, so that's where sort of all this conspired from. Um, and once NCIS got involved, that's, I mean, this, uh, lead investigator, Joel Warpinski, he right away formed his own prosecution in his mind and just looked for ways to go with that. Um, he brought these guys in on the NCIS videos, and we have the videos uh, where he told them, we don't care about anything you guys did on deployment. We don't care, you know, about if you guys did anything wrong. And your guys' names will never come out. Whatever you say here is going to stay here. So you have all that on video. Oh, yeah. And we're going to put that out. Um, I have it all. So they pretty, he, much, he pretty much gave these guys carte blanche to, like, say whatever they wanted to. So that's where they just started spewing, like, lies left and right. Um, and from there, 
and CIS went back to the command after the had, they had investigated these guys and pretty much told the command, we have everything we need to put this guy away for life. The command didn't question it one bit. They were like, roger that. He's guilty. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's done. Um, they, the uh, Craig Miller and them had also said that they had a video of me um, committing these, this heinous act or whatever you want to call it. They were like, we have it all on video. And if you guys don't do something to him, we're going to give the video to CNN. So they sort of blackmailed the command in that way as well. So the command went full on and just career ass mode. Yeah, they we need to protect the institution, and in doing that, we're just going to hang Gallagher out to dry. Um, and from that point, I started getting shunned. Uh, I got pulled out of my instructor billet. They threw me in an office somewhere and pretty much would not talk to me. They told me I just had to sit there and. Um, see what happens. So, you know, for me coming again, coming from the community and I think anybody listening, how, how do you, here's what I have a hard time with is that you've, you've got a guy who, you know, is sailor of the year, which for those of you listening that don't understand what that is, that's, there's one guy picked once a year from an entire SEAL team of, you know, 225 people that gets voted as like the guy, like the, the number one fucking SEAL at a team. And you got that. Yeah. Um, ranked number one chief of all of the platoons at the SEAL team that you were with. Yep. And you took over a platoon that was ranked the very worst in, you know, before you showed up as the platoon chief and the very next, that next deployment, it, it goes from very worst to, to rank number one. How, how was there not at least some going to fucking bat for you on, on the command side? And I'm telling you, that was probably the most frustrating thing for me when I went through when this all started happening to me, um, I literally couldn't wrap my mind around like how nobody was talking to me or just even asking me questions about this. Uh, I actually went and tried to talk to the group one master chief. Um, I went into his office and said, listen, um, whatever is being told to you is a lie. I don't, but he straight up was like, I'm not talking to you about anything. This is out of our hands. You know, you're just going to have to sit and wait. And, Honestly, what it comes down to is, you know, after all this happened, I've actually, you know, gone back and thought like why they did this. It comes down to protecting the institution. You know, NSW looks at itself now as an institution. You know, the Trident is this trademarked thing um, and they'll do whatever they have to to protect it. And that includes hanging one of their own out to dry without asking any questions. And I think that's the scariest part here. I think. You know, I think that's why the community is really divided on this is because guys are seeing what happened to me and they're like, dude, if that can happen to him, that can happen to anybody. And they're willing to just throw you away to, you know, make the community, you know, the institution yeah. look good. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. It is, uh, and forgive my assumption on this, but NCIS, it's almost like internal affairs and in, in police is that they, they kind of trump everything else. And so is it, is it a safe assumption or a correct assumption in saying that like once they were involved, that's when the, the leadership was like, it's yep. fucking out of our hands. Like, yeah, what? they were able to just sort of put it on that and be like, well, that's it's all them now. Yeah. And then NCIS started running the show. Can you refresh my memory? Who who recommended that they that the these five guys contact NCIS was it part of command leadership? It was, you know, um, my TU commander, that my my former TU commander at the time, 
had told them and I, you know, he, he's still active duty. Uh, I wouldn't say his name, but yeah, he, I mean, and I don't blame him. He was like, listen, he, cause he's not going to sit on that. And he's like, yeah. And he oh. wasn't there and he's like, he wasn't. Yeah. And, uh, to me, that's an important distinction is that if you're saying, look, Hey, I don't blame the guy, you know, if he was, if this was brought to his attention, he did the right thing. I mean, yeah. And honestly, like it, it was brought to my attention too. Um, soon after that I had talked to the TU commander and, uh, my SCA and they were like, listen, this is what these guys are saying. Um, and you know, that's why, you know, they hadn't pushed the investigation yet, but I had told them, I was like, then go ahead and investigate it. I was like, start an investigation because they're lying. Um, in my mind, I thought it was going to be an internal investigation, like NSWN to investigate this because I knew if they actually looked into this, they would see all the holes in their stories. Um, but that's not what happened. And CIS took over and that's where it spiraled out of control. Uh, Warpinski, like I said, had formed a prosecution in his head and just all he was taking on was, you know, anything he could find to like go against me or, you know, make me look guilty. Um, there's one, there's one thing that I, I see in that, um, that, that I see in, um, like criminal defense or criminal prosecution attorneys is that one of the, the downsides. And I think it's a mistake in doing that is, you know, they view their success as a lawyer as percentage of convictions yes. that they have, you know, mm -hmm. and to me, like that's a really, I don't know how people can look at that and think that that's a good thing. Like, wow, this guy puts 98% of the people he prosecutes away. Like why, why is that the goal? Well, that just shows you're not really looking for the truth. You're looking for a win. Yeah. You know, and to me, like on, on not just in the military, I mean, it's even more prominent in, in civilian is that like that's regarded as he must be a really good fucking attorney if he can put these people away. And to me, like that's such a fucking backwards way of looking at things. But anyway, um, with the, the specific incident, and again, I'm going off of Wikipedia, for, forgive the, the ridiculousness <laughs> with that, but that's what I had to no, go I off of. I can't wait to hear what it says. Um, let's see. So the, the, the mo it says, you know, multi you're accused of multiple defenses, but the most prominent, uh, best attested to was the murder of, of a prisoner of war, which yep. is a war crime. A, a captured young fighter of ISIS was being treated by a medic, according to two SEAL witnesses, these two E6s, I'm assuming. Yep. Gallagher said over the radio, he's mine, and walked up to the medic and prisoner without saying a word, killed the prisoner by stabbing him repeatedly with his hunting knife. Uh, Gallagher and his commanding officer, uh, OIC, Lieutenant Jake Portier, Portier uh, then used or then posed for photographs of them standing over the body uh, with some nearby seals. Gallagher then text messaged a friend in California a picture of himself holding the dead captive's head by the hair with the explanation, good story behind this, got him with my hunting knife. Yep. So in knowing that that's like the, the primary war crime accusation, what is your response to, to that accusation? So there's a lot of false information and in what you just read and some true information and in what you just read. Uh, the picture I owned up to, um, you know, so basically what happened is we were out that morning um, typical morning, but, uh, it was actually pretty good. We got into a little, uh, firefight and the platoon itself. I mean, we ended up, uh, killing a bunch of ISIS guys, um, in this village that, um, ERD, our partner force was about to clear. Um, we had dropped a lot of ordnance on it. 
um, ERD had pushed through after we pretty much, uh, you know, demolished most of the guys there. And uh, they brought back out of this one building that was uh, hell-fired. There was, the numbers changed, but, you know, there was multiple ISIS guys in there that had died. And this one was still survived. He was under a bunch of rubble. They had pulled him out and brought him back to our the compound we were in. Um, the <laughs> the uh, the statement that I came over comms and no one touched me's mind is a complete lie. Um, that Craig Miller, Dylan Delay got together and they're the only ones who really say I said that. Uh, um, they brought the guy in. I had come up uh, and they saw that he was pretty much. He looked in pretty bad shape. Um, I was like, you know what, we'll treat him and interrogate him and see if there's anything, you know, any other ISIS guys out there or whatever information we can get out of him. So I came up, uh, brought the med bag and started treating him. Um, I did an initial sweep on him. He was uh, shot in the left leg and I mean, he wasn't wasn't breathing. Um, but once I started initial care on him, you know, it was that was it. I was going through the motions of. Um, so he, like I said, wasn't breathing. So I gave, did a pretty invasive procedure, gave him a crike, um, which is, you know, you put the tube in the neck so he can get a patent airway. Um, at that point, the two other medics had come up and started assisting me. Um, that was, uh, TC Byrne and then Corey Scott. So they assisted on the, uh, crike. And at that point they had sort of taken over the med scenario. I got up and went back. Talked to my OIC, who was uh, still dealing with uh, talking with the air controller and the UAV. Um, he asked me, you know, the sit rep on the ISIS fighter. I said, yeah, we're treating him, and then I'll let you know what happens. I and mean, I knew, I was like, it doesn't look like he's going to survive. Um, he's in pretty bad shape. Uh, I had come back, and they had already started chest tubes on him. Um, and from there... They did uh try to they did one chest tube on the left side and then attempted to do one on the right, which was failed. And then they gave they attempted an IV, which they couldn't get a patent IV, and they so they did a uh, interosseous um, through the chest plate. Um, one of the new guys assisted and did the interosseous one um, for training, just so I mean at that point we were like this guy's not going to make it. Um, so one of the new guys was, it was interested in becoming a medic, so they let him do some uh, procedures. Uh, once he put the chest plate in, the guy, I mean, the guy was made no movement whatsoever, and that's a very, very painful procedure. Um, I asked, I was like, you know, is he dead? Craig Miller was sitting at the end of the head, and he was like, I think so. I can't tell. I was like, all right. Um, I had also turned around. The Iraqis were sort of crowding around, um, taking pictures or like trying to take pictures, and so I backed them up. Told, I went and talked to the Iraqi officer. I was like, hey, get these guys out of here. Because we're not, as Americans, we're not supposed to be in pictures anyways uh, with the Iraqis and all that. Um, and then pretty much the guy passed. I came back and he was dead. Uh, and that was that. And so we were still stuck out there for probably three or four more hours. We requested to go back because the um, partner force wasn't clearing. Um, we were told just to stay out there and, you know, see what happened the remainder of the day. And we're like, okay. Um, and there was not a lot going on. Um, and that's when board team guy, uh, started going into effect. Um, the, well, 
uh, my OIC had, I was planning on re-enlisting as well. So he came up and was like, hey, since nothing's going on, you know, we're sort of like in a lull. He's like, you want to do your re-enlistment? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. It was not over the dead body. It was not near the dead body. The dead body was in the vicinity, um, but it was not because the dead body was there. I just knocked out a re-enlistment, which the whole platoon part, you know, took part in and everybody was, you know, okay with it. Um, after the re-enlistment, we were still out there for about another hour and a half, two hours. And that's when guys started coming up and taking pictures with that dead ISIS fighter. Um, so there were other guys in the... Oh yeah. And this is what's not told either is pretty much 90% of the guys out there took pictures just like the one I did. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, um, but this is just stating the facts of what happened that day. Uh, guys were doing, you know, little trophy photo poses with him. Um, same thing, pointing a gun at his head or like doing whatever. Um, I also did the same thing, took a picture with the uh, ISIS fighter. And then um, we took a group picture with him. Um, and that was pretty much it. Uh, Where does the story of, I mean, did you perform the, the, the trach with, with your a combat knife or did you use a no i used a scalpel i used the whole crate kit and so it was a totally fabricated bullshit story yeah so and if people look at the facts because this came out in court um and this is where craig miller's lies couldn't keep straight so when he told ncis that he saw me stab him multiple times in the neck that was a lie uh you know he's like oh i came around the corner and there was eddie just stabbing him randomly uh -oh. And then that lie, like, each time he told it, it was something different. And finally, when he was on trial, they were like, you know, and then what happened? And then he's like, well, then I saw Eddie stabbing him and there was blood squirting everywhere, which he had never said before. And that's when I knew I was like, dude, you just, you screwed up, dude. Like, your lie is getting so extravagant now. So the prosecutor's like, oh, you saw blood squirting. He's like, yeah, I was, he described it as uh, pumping out like baby vomit. Um, and they did tests on the knife, on the sheath. There was no blood, no blood on the knife. Um, I mean, they tried every way to like find blood on it. There was none. If you look at the picture of me posing with him, there's no blood anywhere on me. There's no blood on the knife then. And that's supposedly right after the incident. So, and even the um, pathologist, the prosecutors brought in, that guy on the stand was like, no, I cannot determine that this happened. Uh, because there's no evidence there. So was there some sort of text message that you sent back? I did. And this was, and I'll, you know, own that too. I was uh, one of my best friends. So we were texting back and forth through deployment and, you know, he'd be like, Hey, how's it going? Like, what's, you know, and it was, you know, pretty good deployment. And I was like, Oh, check this out. Like, and it was a joke. It was a dark humor joke. Uh, and if they read like the rest of that thread, because that's the only text they put out there. It, you can see that it's just like dark humor between both him and I. We were joking around. Um, but, you know, after they had raided my house and took my phone, that, you know, I, they, they were like, oh, this is, we got him now. Like, this is, you know, you, you admitted to it, which it's not the case at all. It doesn't look good at all, you know, especially in my case. But it just wasn't true. Um, you know, I did not stab that. ISIS fighter. And so where was, where, what was the turning point in court? I remember, you know, in following it in the news and seeing it, but there was, there was a specific 
instance about that incident where like the the prosecution completely went to shit right yeah i mean the the big instance is where um cory scott the medic who was one of the prosecutor's main witnesses um got up there and pretty much was like no i killed him um i put my hand over the breathing tube um he was gonna die anyways and he knew that if we had handed him over like that to the partner force they would have chopped his head up or done something um that was his big concern so he's like i sort of like mercifully killed him uh put by putting my hand over the breathing tube um and that was like a huge you know shock and awe factor in the in the courtroom the prosecutors freaked out um they had no idea that he was going to say that and uh you know because they never asked him how the i mean they were so focused on just trying to you know convict me they never asked like the real questions. And my lawyer had asked him like, well, how did, you know, the ISIS fighter die? And Corey Scott, and he had said this previously in interviews, oh, he died by asphyxiation. And they never asked him how. And my lawyer was like, well, how did he die by asphyxiation? He's like, because I held my hand over the breathing tube. And that was it. But, you know, then the prosecutors attacked him and were like, well, you're lying. And, they continued on with the case. Um, they just, I mean, I, I'll give it to them. They had a uh, never quit attitude, but uh, it was just in the wrong, the wrong way. I mean, they, and at that point they were hugely embarrassed. They yeah. had wasted all this time and money and trying to prosecute me and I became national news. Yeah. So there was no way they were going to try and, you know, quit. Uh, but the jury saw right through it. I mean, I know the jury at the end told the prosecutors, like, how did this even come to trial? Like, this was embarrassing. Um, and, uh, but there, to me, there were so many other turning points during that trial besides that. I, I don't think people really don't know because they don't know all the facts about the case and what these guys had said. Um, like, for one instance, you know, with the sniper shoot, um, Josh Brenz, who was one of the accusers, who's actually my neighbor, um, was telling the prosecutors that I had shot this little girl. Uh, he's like, well, at first he was like, I thought ISIS did it because ISIS probably did do it. But then it wasn't until way after deployment. He's like, oh, you know what? I think Eddie did it. Um, so the prosecutor's like, oh, did you see it? And he's like, no, I was in a different building. But if you ask this guy, he says he saw it. So they went and asked that guy. And that guy's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. No, I never saw that. And they hid that guy's statement the whole time. Mm. And we're just like, we're pushing we're pushing this through and there's a reason why they added on those two charges the uh, little girl and the old man which weren't added on until later on into my trial is because anybody who heard you know that was like oh we're charging this guy with murder of killing an isis terrorist people were like his first reaction is like well who gives a shit so they decided to add on this little girl and old man as like a shock value like well, now people were like, maybe this guy is a monster. And I mean, that was just so they could further push their narrative. Uh, were, were there any accusations uh, that they came up with that were true uh, outside the two that you said with the, the main instance of uh, the picture and the text messages? Were any of the other accusations that they made throughout this entire thing that were trying to paint you in a bad light, were, were any of them true? No. Not a single not one? Not a single one. So, I mean, from the get-go... And this is and this is how the military justice system works, which I went through the fire and, and learned the hard way or 
what they do is they they find the main charge, which was the murder charge, and then they just look for anything to throw on. So that it's just like throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. So they literally threw on, I mean, I think I started off with 18 to 20 charges. And then by the time we got to trial, it was like down to uh, maybe six or seven, something like that. It's just to, and this is, it's not just me. They do this too, is they do it to everybody to paint you in such a bad light that it's, you know, the jury, or if it's the judge, or he has a preconceived notion like, man, this guy's being charged with all this. Yeah. Like, there's something wrong here. What What was the, the process in terms of once, like, at, at what point did it go from, okay, NCIS is investigating, mm-hmm. um, your command leadership is, it's basically awkward at this point, right? Like, or I'm assuming it was, like, at the SEAL team, did, did there come a point where it was like, you were the, the turd covered in ice cream and, and nobody would even fucking talk to you? Or they... No, it was, they hid me away. Um, so they put me in a log zoo, uh, which is uh, supply for everybody out there. But I had no job. I just sat and I was told to come in, check in, and that was it. Um, and so did, did there become a, a time where they came and fucking arrested you? And, yes. And so when I was at supply, um, they had uh, called me the day prior and like, hey, the XO wants to talk to you tomorrow. Um, he just wants to do a meet and greet. And I was like, okay. Um, threw on my uniform, uh, went in the next morning, knocked on his door and he opened it a crack and like looked at me, shut it and then opened it again. There was probably six or seven NCIS agents in there. Um, they told me that they were going, I had to be detained. Um, and they handcuffed me right there and sort of paraded me through the command. Um, and it took me to an interrogation room. Uh, it's at another base, 32nd Street. Um, once I was there, they were like, you know why you're here? I was like, no. They're like, well, you're being accused of uh, war crimes, and we just want to hear your side of the story. Now I'm smart enough, and I'm like, I'm not going to talk you know, talk to you without a lawyer. So I was like, I want my lawyer. They're like, okay, so you're not going to talk to us without a lawyer? I was like, yeah. Um, like, oh, we'll be right back. And they shut the door and left me in there for seven hours. Um, during that time, they had already sent, they'd been staking my house out for about two weeks. They sent a, uh, pretty much a 25 assault team, 25 man assault team at my house. They knew that my wife and myself weren't home. Um, my eight year old son who was, uh, watching cartoons at the time had, um, looked out the window and saw guys with assault rifles coming up to the house. He then ran upstairs to get my older son, um, who was sleeping. He told him there's guys with guns outside. Um, my older son obviously thought he was messing around, uh, but my youngest son started crying. So he then um, walked down to the front door, opened the door, and the NCIS <clears throat> agents put guns in their face, told them to put their hands up. Um, my oldest son told me they had a uh, the breaching tool, one of those uh, uh, battering, battering rams ready to smash the door open. They pulled both my sons out into the street in their underwear and then just laid siege to my house. Um, and that was sort of, and I had no idea this was going on. I was in the interro- just sitting in that interrogation by myself. Um, my wife was notified by pretty much a neighbor. Had They were screaming at all the neighbors to get back in their house. They had blocked off my whole neighborhood. Like I mean, it was like I was a cartel member. 
Um, the neighbor had called, the little girl had called my daughter and was like, this is what's going on. And then my daughter called my wife and was like, this is what I was told. My wife drove home. They tried to uh, interrogate her and pretty much just ransacked our house and took just an abundance of stuff. Um, they let me out seven hours later. I did not know this happened until I got home um, because they took my phone and everything. That's when we were like, okay, this is real. Like this got it. Because the whole time before that, I had trust in the command still that like somebody's going to see through this. Somebody's going to like, you know, have some common sense here and actually look into this and see that what they were, this is all lies or these allegations are so ridiculous. Um, but at that point I was like, all right, this is nuts. I went into the command the next day, talked to the group one master chief, who was Steve Ward. And I said, Hey, my house was raided. My kids are pulled out at gunpoint. Please tell me what's going on. Nobody will talk to me. And he was like, I still can't talk to you about it. He's like, if you want to talk to a chaplain, go ahead. Um, I said, that's your answer. He said, yeah. And he's like, oh, and by the way, because I had been selected for senior chief, he's like, you're not putting on senior chief um, until this investigation's over, which I never ended up doing, picking up or putting it back on. Uh, so after the house was raided, we had already planned to move to Florida. I was moving my family to Florida because I was planning on retiring, and then I was just going to geobatch um, until my retirement from San Diego. So I moved them out there, got them settled in. Flew back and went to uh, NICO, um, which uh, was like a TBI clinic um, in Pendleton. So I went there and uh, about a week and a half, two weeks into that, the command showed up and arrested me. Told me they had orders from the Commodore Rosenblum and Admiral Green. Uh, yeah, Admiral Green had just taken over command and he signed off on it to throw me in the brig. Um, so, I mean, in that two-week period, what, what was taken? I mean, obviously, if nobody's talking to you, like, it seems odd that, I mean, did you talk to a lawyer? I mean, did he give you any insight? I mean, so, were there charges? What? No, no charges. No how, can, how can they raid your house and take your shit with no charges? It's all, and that's, this is where the corruption and just the way they go about doing things. The reason they raided my house like that was it's a shaming tactic. Because, and it worked. Our neighbors, who had, you know, some of them we'd known for a while, were like, well, you must have done something for this to happen. Um, there was no reason they had to do it that way. They could have literally walked up with two guys and been like, hey, we have a warrant. Um, yeah, they were all, they were just going off hearsay. That's all it was. They had no evidence of anything. But like I said, this Joe Orpinski, this prosecutor, was running the whole show for NCIS. And... That's the way he conducted business. Is that something that, uh, if I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's outside the bounds of protocol, uh, is that something that you guys are fighting for now on the kind of an offensive standpoint on your end? Or yeah, I mean we're we're not um, doing a lawsuit, but we are going, you know, expose ex exactly what happened and how mm -hmm. this corruption and misconduct like took place because I think people do need to know. Uh, yeah. So. All right, so they show up two weeks later while you're pr processing out of the military, basically going through a TBI yeah. clinic, mm -hmm. and they say you're under arrest. You're under arrest. They did not give me a reason. Um, I asked, you know, why. I've been 
you know, I was at the TBI clinic. I was like, I haven't been doing anything. Uh, you know, I've been pretty professional up to this point, doing exactly what you guys told me to do. Why am I being thrown in? And they said, we don't, we don't know. It's just been signed off. Um, it wasn't until I was about a week in the brig um, when I found out that the, so you, when you're in a week in the brig, you get, it's called an initial, initial review hearing um, where they determine whether you stay in the brig or not. And I thought, I was like, I'm getting out because there's absolutely no reason that I should be in here. That's where I first saw the prosecutors. Um, and where I first learned the command was completely like with the prosecution trying to, you know, hang me out to dry. The prosecution got up at that initial review hearing and pretty much called me, you know, everything under the sun. Uh, they were like, this guy is a drug abuser. Um, he beats his wife. I mean, like crazy allegations and that none have no evidence of anything, but that's the crazy system is they can say whatever they want. And you literally just sit there and take it. Uh, the neighbor, Josh Renz had wrote a letter the day before that hearing and said that I was stalking him. Um, and he was afraid for his life. And so on there, he said that I had walked my dogs, which I have two French bulldogs past his house. And that scared him and his family. And he, Said that was intimidation. Well, French bulldogs are nasty. They are. They got attitude. Uh, <laughs> but that's that's why I was kept in the brig, pretty much. They're like, well, this because guy of is, his letter. Yeah, and they knew that NCIS probably had him write it. Um, and this Josh Rains is crazy. I mean, he definitely lost his marbles after that deployment, and he was. So any history of uh, problems, for, for disciplinary problems from him, or was he? No, he was one of those guys. Um, how do I describe him? He had a flair for the dramatics and um, one of those uh, uber Bible thumper to where he thought he was above everybody else um, because, you know, of his Christian faith. And Did um, you ever have altercations with him, crosswords, get in an argument with him? Was there ever? Exact, exactly the opposite. I actually had him over at my house for Bible study. Um, and this is where he joined forces with uh, Craig Miller, Dalton Tolbert and delay. Now he was a younger guy. And I honestly think he was just like looking to fit in. And so he was like, you know what? I'll join your guys's cause here and let's, and whatever I got to do. And then from there, Joe Warpinski sort of took Vrenz under his wing and sort of made him, made him an honorary NCIS agent to where he had Vrenz stalk, like, uh, staking my house out. So he was my neighbor and the whole time I would see him and I would give him little head nods or a little wave. I didn't talk to him uh, because of the whole drama from the platoon, but I had no idea he was like involved in anything up to that point. Uh, so when I saw this letter from him, I was like, this is crazy. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? I've i walk my dogs there. Like that's the route. I take them all the time. I had, and I told him, I was like, I had even no, no idea this guy was even involved. Uh, but Vrins had, I mean, yeah, he's, he lost his marbles. Um, he had, uh, also, well, backtrack a second. I went to a, uh, seal future fund event. Um, and he was at that event. Uh, and this is before my house was raided. Um, 
and there was a knife auctioned off at that event by uh, one of my good friends, uh, Andy Arabito. He owns Half Face Blades. Um, he auctioned the knife off to raise money for the SEAL Future Fund uh, Foundation. And Vrenz, um, at that event, called NCIS and said, oh, he's trying to auction off the murder weapon. <laughs> so now this Vrenz guy, because he's so out of his mind, he got SEAL Future Fund involved. And now they're getting investigated. Um, and it was it was nothing to do with anything. But in his mind, he was, I mean, that's why I'm like, he lost his marbles and he was just so invested in trying to find ways to, you know, screw me over. And that ended up, I mean, wasting NCIS's time, everybody's time, because they were calling the SEAL Future Fund and like, well, you guys auctioned off a murder weapon and it just didn't go anywhere. Um, but it just shows you where this guy's head's at. So when he wrote this letter saying I was stalking him, it was just more of the same, like, all right, man, like you're a little loopy. Uh but honestly, that's what kept me in the brig the whole time. And then once you're in the brig, if you don't make it, no one gets out of that IRO hearing ever, really. And once you go past that, you're not getting out until your trial. And what, what is the brig environment like? Can you describe that? <sighs> yeah, that's a whole other experience. So, which is another curtain that I saw behind. Maybe I, I'm glad I did, but I did not know this existed. So... The brig, the one I went to is at Miramar um, Air, uh, Marine Corps Air Base, and it's uh, all branches. Um, so there's Army, Marine, Air Force, and Navy guys in there. I mean, how, how many beds are there? How many cells or whatever the fuck? Um, so I, I can't give like a exact number. So what I, there's five pods, which each pod is like a general population. Um, I was, you know, in my pod, there's probably like 80 to 100 guys. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Um, you have a, you know, a cell. Everyone has their own cell. Um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much how it's separated. Um, but it, my, the brig I got sent to is a sex offender brig. So pretty much 85, 90% people in there are pedophiles, rapists, and just sexual offenders. Um, and then... Uh, you know, you'll have, that's where they put some guys for pretrial confinement. So you go there, they believe, you know, you're a threat or whatever. They'll, you'll sit in there until your trial. Um, brig life is, it's a different beast, man. It's a whole different ecosystem in there. And it took me, so when they first put me in there, they treated me like I was Jason Bourne. Um, I was obviously this, you know, told I'm like this high risk individual. I was in, you know, being a Navy SEAL is, you know, everyone's like, oh, this guy's dangerous. Um, they had me shackled from my legs to my hands. Um, and they would shut down the whole prison if they had to move me. Uh, they threw me in isolation for about 72 hours when I first got there. Um, that means you can't leave that room. They would, you know, slide food under 
the door. And then finally they were like, hey, you're, you don't seem to be a problem. We're going to throw you in general population. Um, and that's when I was yeah, put in gen pop. Are you, I mean, is it like what's portrayed on TV? Um, you got your own room, but like, is there periods where you're going outside and mingling with the other people or? So no, it's, well, yeah, you have one hour of a uh, yard time. You're supposed to have one hour yard time a day. Um, <clears throat> that was at eight at night for us. So you no sunlight. no sunlight. Um, the only time you saw sunlight is when you marched to chow. And, uh, that was, you know, about two minutes. Um, so yeah, I, I'm being in pretrial confinement is almost worse than being an actual prisoner in there. So if you get convicted and you're an actual prisoner, you're given a job so you can leave the gen pop and go do your job for the day and come back. Pre-trial, you cannot do anything. You sit from 5.45 in the morning till about 9 at night in the same gen pop area. They have one TV where they are only allowed to play CNN, and that's it. Uh, you get one hour yard time at 8 o'clock at night. There's really They had a pull-up bar, dip bar, and like, like a couple weights, but that's shared between 100 people. Um, and you just had to, like... I just had to find ways to adapt to that environment. Uh, During this time, well, two questions. One, how long was were you in that environment? And two, in terms of outside contact with your attorney, with your family, uh, what did that look like? So, yeah, that's the other problem. Which is, this is why uh, the president sort of got involved. Um, there, uh, there are all sorts of uh, human rights violations that go on in that brig. Uh, for one, they starve the prisoners. Um you're not allowed food at all unless you go to chow and that chow is they literally time it 20 minutes and uh that's it and they barely give you enough food um and then you also are pretty much blocked from your legal representation i mean it's it's a pain in the ass to get to be able to talk to your lawyers and on top of that i was definitely being uh targeted um and you know the, the other prisoners in there all caught on real quick and they're like dude they are treating you a lot different than we've seen you know so the i had a couple guards that were cool with me they would come and tell me like listen ncis and the prosecutors are telling the guards to make you snap to like do stuff to you so you will you know snap or do something and they can pretty much point the finger like see he's crazy um, so it literally was like a game to me in there where I was like, I just bit my tongue, um, and I wouldn't react to anything, um, that they did to me. And I mean, it was to the point where they, you know, they come toss my cell at random times. Um, anytime I did see my legal team, which was barely, or I had a visitation, they would strip me naked afterwards. Um, you know, take all your clothes off the whole, like lift your nutsack, spread your cheeks. And then they would just, you know, sit there and like stare at me and like, see if I would do something. And all that is not protocol. Uh, there's, you know, it was just pretty blatantly obvious, um, that they were trying to rattle me. Um, and then on top of that, I was not getting the proper legal representation I needed. And so my wife and, um, a couple other people filed, um, IGs, you know, uh, investigations into the brig uh, because this was happening. And that's what sort of spun up. And I think that's, you know, the president 
finally got word of it and my wife was going on Fox News sort of telling the truth like this is what's happening this and the crazy thing is I'm not the only one that's happens to this happens to so many people in there it's just that nobody has a voice and nobody has a wife that'll fight for them which we sort of brought up before and nobody has the money for real lawyers uh they are you, are you having to pay for that oh yeah so I mean my legal fees <clears throat> by the end were well over half a mil uh and that's the thing. The only rights that you have are the ones you can afford. And that's that's what we learned. Um, they issue or not issue. They they give you a JAG. That's, you know, the Navy's like, well, we, you know, you'll get a lawyer. This JAG, first off, was up in Lemoore. So he had to go TAD to even come see me, which was barely ever. Um, you know, and then they they stack the deck against you so hard to where... What I call the break, it's a plea bargain factory. So you go in there and they're like, this is what we're charging you with. Um, we have everything. You're done. Um, you're going to, like for me, they're like, you're getting life without parole. So you're sitting in a cell with that weight on your shoulders. But if you admit to it, we'll give you 20 years. Exactly. But, yeah. but they don't come up with that until maybe a couple months later. When you're fucking When, yeah, you're nuts. weak. Yeah. And they're like, Hey, you just, and they did, they came to me like multiple times. Like, listen, you just say, admit to this and we'll give you 25 years. And you know, I, my answer was about half a second. I'm like, go fuck yourself. Like I'm, I'm innocent. You know, I'm going to trial. Uh, but yeah, it's, if they do that to these other young kids in there, that these 24, 25, 20, 24, 25 year old E5s, um, and they're, you know, and these kids end up breaking and they're like, okay, I'll just admit to it and I'll do four or five years, which. <laughs> so how, how, how long did you end up in that? So I was in the brig for about seven, a little over seven months, I think. And then that's when, uh, you know, the president had tweeted, like, get him out um, and give him, afford him the opportunity to defend himself before he goes to trial. The, and, you know. They let me out that, that day that he tweeted that. Um, the command was pissed. Uh, Rosenblum, Commodore Rosenblum was irate that the president had done this. So he took it upon himself to lock me in a barracks room at Balboa. And still I had no, I, I almost had less um, rights there. To where, and I wasn't able to contact my legal team there. I wasn't allowed a phone, computer, TV, anything. I was just in this room. Um, and, uh, we actually had, so we had to go to court to file a complaint like, Hey, he doesn't have access to his legal team. Still the judge looked at the prosecution and my command was like, listen, I'm not ordering you to give him a phone. I'm advising you to do it. And if this doesn't get fixed, I will get involved. So a week later, the command shows up, uh, Kelly Anderson, the command Jag gives me a phone with no service. <laughs> She's like, this is the phone you get. That's it. And I told her, I was like, there's no service on this thing. She's like, too bad. I mean, that's how like much they were, you know, trying to screw with me. And a lot of it at that point was out of pure emotion because my wife was going out and calling them out on everything. And so they were pissed about that. I mean, there's so much stuff that they were pissed about and they just kept trying to screw me over. Um, it wasn't until 
I was probably stuck in that barracks room for about a month and a half until the prosecutors got caught spying. Um, and uh, that's when the judge was like, he relieved the prosecutor. And because the prosecutor spying, they violated, I think, my fifth and sixth amendment rights. He was like, I'm letting him out of confinement. And that's when I was released from Balboa. To, then you went to Sizzler, got yourself a steak. Damn right. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, God, that's fucking nuts, man. Um, so at that point, the the initial prosecutor that had such a hard on for you, he got relieved. Yeah, and a new guy came in. They brought in another prosecutor, um, and that's the other crazy thing about the military justice system is, if that had happened in civilian court, and a prosecutor had been caught, I mean, spying and sending beacons out to try and get the defense's plan the case would have been dismissed right there i yeah. mean and that prosecutor would have went to prison in the military justice and they're like you know what boom we'll just relieve him and throw in another prosecutor and so when, when you say spying what like what exactly is that consisting of so what he did is uh he sent an email to my lawyer asking some random question like hey you know what dates i don't i don't remember the question it was just something not even pertinent but he attached a beacon on it um, which NCIS was involved. NCIS taught the prosecutor how to do this. So if my lawyer had clicked on that beacon, it's like a little symbol. They would have access to everything. Um, that all my lawyers' emails. So they sent that same email to all my lawyers um, and anybody that was on my side in the case. My lawyer though was smart enough because he had a previous um, client that had a stalker and the same thing had happened to him. This is like divine intervention almost. My lawyer saw this and was like, dude, I've seen this before. Emailed the guy back and was like, tell me this isn't what I think it is. And there was no response. And that's when my lawyer's like, dude, I cannot believe this happened. They investigated it. And sure enough, it's they did exactly that. I mean, they broke the law, um, tried to spy on my legal team. And uh, yeah, that's how they got relieved. Um, and, uh, they, but that's the crazy thing is they just kept going. Uh, and then, so that guy gets relieved now at this point, you're living back with your family now. No. So I, when I got released from, uh, confinement, we, I was only like about three and a half weeks out from trial. Um, so I did go back probably like for three days back to my house in Florida, spent some time with my kids. And then, I mean, my whole legal team pretty much lived in San Diego with me up until the trial. And we just worked our asses off. Uh, they definitely worked their asses off getting ready, prepping for trial. Um, I stayed at, uh, said the sub base down in Point Loma. We just stayed at the, um, BEQ. Yeah. yeah. Bachelor enlisted quarters. Yes. You civilian bucks. <laughs> stayed down there, uh, with my wife. Um, and then once the trial started, my whole family flew out. Uh, including my mom and dad, my brother, and we got a, like an Airbnb in Point Loma and just stayed at that house. And, uh, yeah, trial was a whole different animal. How uh, how long was the trial from start to finish? Uh, about three weeks. Three weeks. Yeah. And so it, it, there was one question I had written down that I'm very curious about is that during that time when you're in there, what was the the feeling like, like the the air, the ambiance between 
Craig Miller, the other two guys, you know, some of the other medics, you like, was there like this feeling of tension, awkwardness uh, that was palpable or was it, was it not because it was such an official thing with so many other people involved or what was that like facing those guys in that environment? It was, so I didn't, I didn't see them. I didn't get to see them until they actually came and take this, took the stand. They kept those guys uh, in the back and would like, you know, bring them in when it was returned to testify. And honestly, they, they didn't bring those guys in to testify until about the second week. Um, or maybe the end of the first week into the second week. But I knew, and this is what I was telling everybody up to the trial, because I had a lot of, a lot of guys and the teams, you know, were, especially after I was released, were coming up like, dude, you know, this is nuts. Like, and they were telling me exactly what the Commodore and the command were doing, like going around telling everybody not to support me. Um, and I told them, I was like, listen, it's all going to come down to when those guys take the stand. And I was like, I'm not worried about it. I'm like, dude, they've told so many lies. I was like, this is going to be embarrassing. And sure enough, it w it was even, it was worse. Well, better for my circumstance, but they came off worse than I could have ever expected. I mean, Craig Miller got up there and just flat out, like, couldn't keep up with his lies. And then he knew he was getting caught up. And then all of a sudden he got a case of amnesia and was like, I don't, I don't remember anything anymore. I don't know this. I don't know that. All I know is that he stabbed him and that's it. Like you couldn't tell any other of these details. Um, you know, then the whole baby vomit thing came out of nowhere. Uh, so like, I remember, I think that they had a bunch of reporters in the back and the comments, like, cause you could sort of hear what they were saying. They were like, this guy's a Navy SEAL. Like this dude's an idiot. Like, how is he, how is he their main witness? But that's, I mean, so he got off and then, um, was there a, like when he was standing there, would he not look at you? Would he, oh yeah. He, he wouldn't really look at, no, he wouldn't look at me. And I, you know, this is the crazy thing is you're told when you're on trial, you know, I was told all these things before it started, like, don't make any facial expressions. Don't just have a stone, you know, straight face. Don't try and not look a certain way because everything that you do, the jury is looking right at you. And that can base their decision just because nobody's perfect. They're all human. So they could be like, oh, I don't like the way this guy's looking or that looks like that looks like a look of guilt. So I had to keep like a straight face the whole time, um, even when I'm hearing these guys spew out this crap. Um, I think the only time I lost it where it was visible is when the NCIS agent got up there and because they were denying that they pulled my kids out of gunpoint the whole time. Um, they were like, that's not true. They admitted it on the stand. They're like, yes, we pointed guns at his kids. Yes, we pulled them out in the underwear. And I definitely, I mean, I, I was so angry. I was almost in tears. Just like, I wanted to jump across the table and rip his throat, you know. But that was like the only time I really ever showed any kind of emotion. The rest, when those guys came in, I would just look at them, blank stare, and like, I was just in disbelief that these guys were still continuing to do this. Um, and there was a lot of reasons that they, they got pushed to that point. They had the backing of the command. I mean, I think they thought in their mind, like the command has our backs, Every, you know, we're good. To this day, do you know why the Commodore and the Admiral, why they kind of sided so heavy with with NCIS, not because I'm, I'm assuming they didn't really know you, right? So no, I still have never said I've never talked or met those guys once. So what, I mean, do you do you have any insight on the, their motivation to be so hardline about it? 
Because, I mean, again, if you're looking, you know, people that aren't SEALs that have no idea about anything are like, okay, well, the SEALs seem like a pretty fucking tight outfit, a pretty close fraternity. Mm-hmm. This guy, you know, is accused of this and he's got this as a track record in terms of, you know, no huge instances of, of uh, insubordination or problems or anything else. Sailor of the year, you know, number one chief, blah, blah, blah. There has to be something that, that makes those guys decide, you it's, know, what we're all in. Fuck this guy. Yeah. So I think it and this is what it comes down to is protecting the institution and that. So from the get go. They were trying to protect the institution because these guys had sort of blackmailed the command and said, if you don't do this, we're going to send this video, which didn't exist, to to uh, CNN. And what was the video that they said exists? So they said they had a video of um, the whole incident of me stabbing the guy, everything. Um, and the, so the command was like, okay. And I, I can only imagine, you know, what they're thinking is like, oh, shit, we don't need this getting out. So let's get this Gallagher guy and hang him out to dry or, you know, we're going to pros- get him prosecuted. So that way we t- looks like we take care of our own. Uh, once they threw me in the brig, they put all their chips in. They're like, we're going full force. This guy's going away. Like we've got to make an example. of this. Yes. Yeah. Now I think that flipped once the little truth started coming out and like, Oh shit. So what these guys are saying is a lie, including the video, because the video finally did come out and it did not show anything like that. In fact, it exonerated me. All it was is me coming up with the med bag and starting to treat the guy. And then somehow it magically shuts off. Um, And I think people should think about that, too. Why did that video just show me coming up, treating that guy? And then they deleted it from there, shut it off. It's because the rest of the video just shows me doing medical treatment on them and that's it. Now they deleted on purpose. So nobody would, you know, then they have to decide what happened. Uh, once that video came out, then the command, instead of backing off and being like, okay, we might've made a mistake. They just fell on their sword and they're like, well, now we've got to protect the institution because we don't want to be embarrassed. And they went full on trying to, uh, once again, make me guilty. Um, what did they do to, to try to make that happen? Given all of those circumstances, as far as making me guilty. Yeah. Oh, um, while I was incarcerated, the Commodore, um, Rosenblum, the master chief went around to each command, each seal team and held all calls with all the seals telling them that I was guilty, that they had seen all the evidence that they had seen the video, which was a blatant lie. In that no one should support me. Um, and so they pretty much, and I've heard this from multiple SEALs at each command that they did this, and it's the same exact speech that the Commodore gave. Um, they, uh, the, there was uh, free Eddie shirts that were being made. If guys wore those into the command, they were getting counseled. Um, they, were, they were just cutting off all support possible for me. And in doing so, I mean, not only is that unlawful command influence, um, and they had also had like the ma- some of the master chiefs and OICs, the especially the ones from Trade at uh, Master Chief Birkenbach and Commander Green were doing the same thing, going around to each cell at Trade at saying Gallagher's guilty, and these guys who turned him in are heroes, and you guys should treat them as such because the guys themselves were were pretty pissed and like 
they were questioning the command, like, why are you guys throwing him in prison? He hasn't even gone to, you know, trial. Like, why is he being treated like this? So they were pushing that narrative, like, oh, no, he belongs in there. If you knew what we knew, he belongs in there. Uh, that, yeah. that, that alone right there, I mean, is insane that they were doing that. Yeah, and, and to be fair, you know, imagine, and again, I'll, I'll give my perspective on it here in a second, but imagine, you know, most of the guys are going to be at that point are junior to you. Yeah. You know, have never met you that have a, a, you know, senior, senior leadership in the SEAL community holding in all hands and say, hey, this guy's a fucking bastard. He's guilty. Don't support him. If you do, you're going to get in trouble. It'd be hard not to believe that, you know. Well, yeah, you're being told from yeah, the by your leadership. Yeah. Exactly. And doing so, that also tainted the jury pool. Yeah. Um, well, and it, I mean, to me, it's like politics and church. Like they, they shouldn't have gotten involved either way. No. Now, and here's where I'll, I'll say my opinion is, is, you know, being on social media and having the podcast, you know, a lot of people ask, hey, what do you think of, of what's going on? And, you know, I, I made a point of, of not having an opinion either way until I knew more about it. You know, and, and some people, even in the, in the community, I think, have a problem with that of saying, like, hey, why didn't you have Eddie's back, like, from the get-go? And it's like the same reason I didn't have the guy at Team One that got rolled up with child porn's back from the get-go because I don't fucking know him. Yeah. I wasn't there. It's not my fucking business. Like, I'm not going to assume that he's innocent because he's a team guy. I'm also not going to assume that he's guilty because of what's being said. I'm yep. going to stay the fuck out of it. Now hearing all of the story, like, yeah, it's it's infuriating, uh, you know, to know that, that that's, that's how it all went down. But it's still, like, to me... You know, I always try to maintain a, a level of, of neutrality when it comes to something I don't I don't know enough about to have an opinion on, you know. Um, and that's exactly the way that I expect anybody to, you know, be like, yeah, you don't know me. Um, I don't expect you to have my sides because you don't know the facts. And I don't blame people for, I mean, they should stay neutral because that's how the system is supposed to play out. Yeah. Like you, that's why somebody goes to trial to see if they're guilty or not guilty. Um, and that obviously wasn't happening. I mean, I was presumed guilty from the get go and they were trying to push that narrative. Now, as far as guys, you know, reaching out like, Oh, you should have his back. I think there was definitely, um, some guys visiting me in the brig, um, and they were knowing what was going on. Yeah. But at the same time, it's very hard at that point to like push out all this corruption that's going on because we're fighting against NSW command and the military justice system. It was just, yeah, it was a nightmare. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, it obviously was, it sounds like it. And, and to me, you know, looking back on it now, like it's just such a fucking black eye for the community in a lot of ways. Oh yeah. You know, because there, there is a, a significant portion of the population, especially because the president got involved, you know, so by default, and this is a shit sandwich for you, that just is the reality of the world we live in is that anybody that hates the president, which is half the fucking country. Yep. If they see him take your side, automatically fuck you too then, you know? Exactly. Well, that's, yeah, you could see that plain as day. Once, uh, you know, the president did get involved, I became like a political football. Yeah. That, you know, certain, you know, New York Times and all these entities were now completely against me. I mean, to where after I was acquitted and found innocent of all these charges except the pictures, they wrote articles saying that, oh, he got away with murder. And like, so I guess, you know, the system doesn't work now yeah. because I was found innocent. And mm-hmm. that to me was insane. Yeah. I was like, and it still goes on to this day. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, yeah, you still see it. I mean, I, I guarantee you, 
in, in, in posting this interview, like there's, it's going to be a lightning rod for sure. There's going to be people that don't listen to it, you know, that are, because I, you know, I'm, I'm in dogs and that's kind of a, it's, it's really not a political fucking issue. You know, I've, I've got uh, supporters on from yeah. all, all walks of life, all spectrums, you know, some that are uber fucking liberal, some that are ultra conservative libertarians, I mean, gay, straight, fucking transgender, you name it. Like every, almost everybody loves dogs, you know? So without question, there's going to be people that, you know, motherfuck me for even having you on here, you know, that oh, say, I'm sure. and you know, like you're propping them up and you're giving a murder or a platform and that's bullshit, you know, and it's like, well, fuck you, you know? And all I can but, say to those people is this, like, you know, I understand that if you're on the other side and you don't like the president, like, fine. But I have nothing to do with that. Like, I went to trial and I was found innocent because I am innocent. And that's the bottom line. Like, the fact that some people are still going after me and saying, like, oh, you're a murderer. Like, and because the president got involved, like, you really don't have a foundation for your argument. Like, that's, you know, and I'm, you guys don't know me. And maybe if you did talk to me, you'd find out I'm actually a pretty normal person and yeah. you would actually find out just how scary the situation is for sure. Yeah. And, and to me, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad to, to be in a position to have a platform to, for you to tell your side because there hasn't, hasn't really been one. No. Um, you know, and, and to me, it's, it's an important aspect of, of our society that many times because politics are involved, uh, that, that, you know, right. And element gets lost. Um, you know, I, I'm glad that, that things have worked out the way that they have for the most part. I think, you know, you still, from the sounds of it, you know, have, have some shit sandwiches to deal with, uh, by people, you know, again, that, that just automatically assume like, cause I, I again, like there's going to be people that, that I lose their support even for having you on here, which I don't, I don't give a fuck, but, um, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, to me, it's, it's an important uh, you know, process that needs to be, needs to be put out there. And I'm, I'm glad you're telling the story. Um, well, I appreciate you letting me be on here. And yeah. Talking. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, I think every, everybody ought to have, uh, at, at the most bare minimum, everybody deserves the right to at least explain their side of the fucking story. You know, um, if there is anything that like looking back on it, is there anything that you think you fucked up or that, that you feel like, you know, you should take accountability for that you could have done better. And then throughout this whole process where you're like, you know, other than the one instance of, you know, maybe a little bit of positive reinforcement on the platoon, like, is there, is there anything in this trial accusations, what have you, that you're like, yeah, I fucked that up and probably shouldn't have done that or, or, or anything like that. Oh, for sure. I mean, the picture itself, um, you know, doing that, I've, if I could do it over again, I wouldn't take that picture. Um, you know, and I'm, I never denied taking that picture and I took accountability from it from the get go. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, and it's hard to explain to sort of, I guess the civilian populace on the mindset you are, you have when you get over there. Um, I think there's, there was a lot of emotion involved, um, in it, you know, with just seeing the atrocities that, ISIS committed every day to women, kids, and children, and then, you know, it's just the environment that you're in. You just, you don't have the same mindset you have over there that you do back home. And I'm not making excuses for taking that picture by saying that, but I'm just sort of trying to give the civilian who's listening just sort of an aspect. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't take the, I wouldn't take those pictures again, um, you know, but that's, 
And I would change some of my leadership style, I guess. But that's also any good leader, you know, learns from his mistakes and continues to lead. Uh, you know, nobody's perfect. You know, I think a lot of this, the leadership stuff that's being taught now by guys that are out, it's those guys all made mistakes too. And that's the stuff they're teaching now is probably a lot of the mistakes that they did make. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, as far as everything else, the way that I conducted my tactics, the way that I, you know, aggressively, you know, took it to the, to ISIS during the deployment. No, I wouldn't change anything about that. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, as far as anything after that fact the trial or all that, no, I felt like I conducted myself in the most professional manner possible. I tried to hold my head up high the whole time because um, I knew I was innocent. And no, I wouldn't change anything. Yeah. Follow, uh, aftermath, follow on since, uh, you know, once you were uh, found not guilty, um, has anything happened to the accusers? Are they still active duty? What Like what's happened to them? And, and are there any consequences for any of them? And this is, yeah. And this is where I think... Um, the problem lies is I was found innocent, which meant those accusers were lying. They, and they, you know, their lies got, their stories all got holes poked in them as they took the stand. Nothing, they were not held accountable at all. As a matter of fact, it was quite the opposite. As soon as I was found innocent, I tried to go back to work. I was banned from the teams, banned from, uh, the, both amphibious bases and they stuck me down at the new base. Um, the Commodore continued to go around saying that I was a criminal and that I had gotten away with it. Um, they sort of put a blanket around these guys um, that, hey, nobody touched them. At that point, the guys, you know, the boys and the, the teams were like, you know, fuck these guys. Um, I can't believe they did this. Uh, but they were told like they were untouchable. Um, even to the point where uh, Dalton Tolbert, when he took the stand, we had we had uh, text messages from all of them, their little uh, group text that they had together. In that text message, he had said, because he was at he is at development group at uh, Blue Squadron. In that text message, he said, "Everybody I work with." is just like Eddie Gallagher, and they all like to kill civilians. He's on the stand. We're like, did you text this? Yes. Where do you work? At development group. So everybody there likes to kill civilians. He sort of like, oh, well, like, have you deployed with them yet? No. So you're already accusing them of war crimes. And this is, I mean, it just sort of proved the point, like, dude, yeah, this is how these guys are, but... He is still there because Ad, the Admiral went and pretty much was like, do not touch him. You know, he's allowed to stay there. Have you talked to any of the guys there that uh, work with him? I mean, is, is his reputation there fucking? I haven't. And you know what? I steer clear of that because I don't want to get involved. Like, if that's the way, you know, if, if they're going to keep him over there for some reason, I just hope that. He doesn't pull the same kind of crap. Um, I, I don't know. I, I definitely I'm not getting involved in that because that was they that was one of my charges in the first place is because I had called up one of my buddies over there when he was first trying out. And all I said was, listen, I wouldn't trust that dude. He's, you know, I call him, you know, I probably called him some name. 
they use that as a charge as, oh, I'm trying to ruin his career. Uh, little do they know that when guys go try out, you get phone calls if you're their prior leadership, like, what do you think about this guy? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I, I stay steer clear of that. I honestly, I haven't, I steer clear of, um, you know, I don't try to make contact with any of those dudes. Um, I, I figure, you know, the problem's going to work itself out. I, I can't imagine anybody wanting to do a platoon with those guys after this. Uh, so I don't know what's, what's going to happen, but the one thing I do know is, um, you know, I, I put out a video last week, which I know caused a lot of ruckus and people were like, Oh, you put their names out and their faces. Also, the first thing I'm going to say about that is their names and faces were out during the trial and where they worked. Uh, and they've been put out multiple times after that. Um, and then uh, New York Times, Dave Phillips, uh, made a TV show or series, one TV show about me called The Gallagher Effect. And in that show, he spliced up the NCIS interviews to make it look like, you know, I'm this evil person. Um, uh, and so after he put that pretty one-sided show out about me, the death threats that I was getting and my family was getting escalated. And we've been getting death threats since this whole thing ended um, just from whatever people who hate me because like we said, the president's involved or whatever. Um, but the death threats definitely escalated after that. And we said, you know what? We're, we're not just going to sit here and let this happen. We're going to fight back and we're going to expose exactly what the truth is. And so that was a little, preview of what's to come i am going to put out unedited their ncis interviews and also their trial audio and people can see for themselves just what a mess this was yeah. because i get what people think they're like you know how can navy seals turn on their own and believe me it blew my mind as well but i people need to see the truth yeah. And you know what? These guys do need to be held accountable for doing this. You cannot just make up allegations trying to put somebody away for life and then it didn't work out and you're going to continue on living your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, to me, whether it's the New York Times guy, I mean, to me, like the that uh, incident with CNN and the, the teenager, Nick Sam, and the, you know, um, mm. the issue where the, you know, Native American drum beating thing yep. and, and they motherfucked him. And I mean, he just sued him and... I mean, he sued him for two hundred fifty million, and they settled. So I'm sure it was a lot, you know. And there's like twelve, twelve <laughs> other fucking media outlets that he's going after. Also, I mean, to me, you know, that that's one way to uh, hold people accountable, especially when it's a big media outlet, is is their fucking pocketbook. I mean, I don't know if that's we have a so we have a lawsuit um, prepped and ready against New York Times. Except this is the problem: people sue New York Times on a daily basis because they do put out nothing but, you know, their agenda, and a lot of it is not right um so yeah we we have a lawsuit ready to go against them yeah. and against dave phillips yeah. um because he definitely continues to fame me and my family uh and you know it's his money ticket yeah what uh in in terms of any of the other guys or, or any of the accusers people that contributed to um you know, what, what happened to you? Is there, can you say, is there any, uh, plan for suing them or, or getting any, enacting any type of consequence? No. Um, you know, I'm not going to go after them. And then the like NCIS, you know, people have like, Oh, you should sue NCIS. This is the problem is 
you are suing the government and it's almost impossible. Yeah. They yeah. have everything on their side. And so you're going to spend more money on lawyers trying to sue them than what you're going to get in return. Yeah. Uh, it's just another rabbit hole that I just don't want to go down. Um, you know, I'm going to expose everything that they did. Um, people can look at it if you want to believe it or not. I mean, they're straight facts. Uh, but yeah, I'm, you know, I, I don't need to go through, I've got enough stuff with lawyers or <laughs> been dealing with them for too long. I'm like, dude, I don't have the bandwidth to, yeah. uh, just want to move on. Yeah. And I'm sure these guys that accuse me, I can't imagine what their headspace is right now. Yeah. Uh, and that's, they dug that grave. Um, and you know, honestly, I hope they do get some help yeah. um, that they need. Well, rock and roll. Uh, so the, the big burning question is what the fuck now? Now what are you going to mean? Yeah. So um, actually, you know, even though this whole thing was a nightmare, there's been a lot of blessings that come out of it. Um, so right now uh, I'm working uh, pretty close with Nine Line uh, Apparel. So they uh, decided to... Tyler, uh, who's the CEO of Nine Line, decided to uh, start a clothing brand called Salty Frog Gear. And he offered me, you know, he's like, do you want to be the ambassador? And this clothing line is going to be sort of around you and how you are in your lifestyle. Um, he started that pretty much a little bit after my trial. Um, and I was still trying to get out of the Navy at the time. So I didn't I wasn't involved as much, but he got it going. Um, I'm definitely now getting heavily more heavily involved in that um, and sort of turning it into what fits me. Uh, so that's, I think, you know, that's going to be a big project. Uh, and then, um, I got offered a, another sort of ambassador job by uh, Redcon one, um, the supplement company. Yeah. Well, Aaron Singerman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's awesome. Awesome guy. So, uh, I'm going to be working with them and I should be having my, uh, my nonprofit that, uh, my wife and I, my brother, are uh, heavily invested in right now should be off and running um hopefully within a month i mean there's a lot of stuff that's involved in starting a nonprofit, but um uh, that's going to be called the pipe hitter foundation and that is pretty much going to uh raise awareness for guys in that are in my situation but it's not it's gonna be uh war fighters uh law enforcement um you know uh, border patrol agents any anybody that's you know being a uh public servant i guess uh not a public servant first responder first responder yeah there it is uh that you know if they're being unjustly accused of something we're going to take a look at their case and um you know help them raise money for them for their legal defense and also use that as a platform to speak out against the ucmj and get some reform going um that's going to be a big thing coming up uh and then um i'll be uh coming out with a book with, you know, pretty much detailing everything. And I don't think, you know, like we could sit here and talk about all the little intricacies of what happened to me and my family. And it would probably be 10 hours of talking because yeah. there's so much stuff that's involved, but I'm going to put everything in there. Um, any, and, any idea when that's uh, coming? Uh, not yet. Um, I'm just, uh, sort of still working on it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I want to make sure it's done right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty much what's going on in the future. Um, I'm 
you know, I'm only like two months out of retirement. So yeah. I, I took that. Uh, You're still shitting Navy chow, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm just trying to spend as much time with my family as I can. Yeah. I, you know, to me, perspective, uh, perspective wise, you know, seeing that you're starting a foundation to, uh, you know, mitigate similar circumstances happening to other people like you from, from my standpoint says a lot, you know, and I think it's really cool that you're doing that. Um, oh, yeah. Well, that, you know, we, we got so much support during this whole thing and the uh, Navy SEALs fund, um, which God bless them. They, you know, raised money for us, for my family during this whole time. And we, not giving that back with all the support that we got would just be wrong. And that's, we want to pay it forward. Um, there's actually, uh, and I won't get into too much details of it, but there's three MARSOC Marines being charged with murder right now. And they are going through the same corrupt process, um, that I went through. And, uh, you know, if people, uh, look into that, um, and see what's going on. Yeah. Um, I, w I would ask real quick too, just going through all of this, obviously, you know, you being in that position, you know, I think as any father, husband, you know, grown ass man, uh, it's one thing for you to handle that kind of stuff. How has this entire process impacted your family? Uh, and, and, and where are they now in terms of, you know, mentally and, and relationship wise? I mean, are you guys kind of back to normal or is it, there's it kind of a, it's a, uh, back to normal. I think, you know, my wife joke, it's a new normal, but, uh, yeah, we're, my wife is probably the strongest person I've ever met in my life. Um, I mean, she, she blows my mind, like just how she handled this whole thing. I mean, she. And I think everybody knows they saw her on the news. She took the fight. Um, no, she was to the a Navy. Fucking pit bull out there. At the there, same man. time, yeah. Like my kids are just as strong. Um, you know, my they had obviously they were stressed out during this, and there's there's always some implications afterwards. Um, but like like I stated in the beginning, this whole situation made us like that much stronger. And I think that's what was really blowing the command or the prosecution's mind is like they kept trying to do stuff to us and we were like you're just making us stronger that's it and we i mean we are so tight right now that you know and thank god and we're we're just you know we feel blessed um that we are and we're we're continuing you know to stay sort of stay in the fight and like i said you know expose exactly what happened because it needs to be because the biggest thing is like we sort of described before, I hadn't, there was, I had no pattern of any of this beforehand. I'm like, I had a pretty good reputation, a pretty good, you know, solid career. And this happened. So if this can happen to us, this can happen to anybody. And that should scare you. Uh, and we want to make sure that doesn't happen to anybody else. Yeah. No, for sure. Hearing all of the details now and, and not having known a lot of them, uh, it is, it's fucking scary for sure. Um, what, what would you say, um, to the SEAL teams on your behalf and how, how do we as a community move forward from something like this? You know, and first off, I, I freaking love the community. I love, I love the guys, the boys working right now, all the sled dogs and the platoons and the guys that are training. Like, I would just say, keep doing what you're doing. I mean, I had guys coming up to me, um, afterwards and they're just, 
they're conflicted. Um, I would just say, you know, trust your your leadership, the your platoon chiefs, um, that they know what they're doing, um, and keep taking the fight to the enemy. I the last thing I want is for my situation to make guys question on what what they're doing overseas. You know, and I think. Whether you like the president or not, he has shown that he is backing the warfighter on this. And I hope that gives guys the confidence when they go over there that, you know, this country does have their back. Uh, I think as far as repairing the community, um, I think it's going to take some time. I think it's going to be a, a couple of years of some pain. But I do think they're, they're starting to make the right steps. Uh, Admiral Green just got relieved. I think he was a huge problem. Um, so he actually got relieved and not... Uh, or I think they're doing it the uh, polite way by saying he's stepping down a year early, but it's pretty much getting relieved. I think he lost confidence in the uh, the guys um, with his decisions. I think that is the correct, you know, first measure to take. And then, uh, you know, I think the senior leadership should really take a, you know, strong, hard look at themselves and how they're conducting business and how they're treating the guys who are out there doing the job. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah. Yes. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, and it's just a, it's going to be a top-down effort. But I think we're going to, you know, we'll be fine. It's the teams. Yeah. We, we bounce back from whatever. Yeah. Yep. Amen. Well, I'll tell you, man, it's uh, it's been a fucking absolute delight having you on. Uh, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time out of your schedule to come here and, and tell your side of the story. There's not an ounce of doubt uh, in my mind that, that the, the listeners are, are going to both love and appreciate, uh, you know, getting your, your story told firsthand and, and cutting through all of the, he said, she said bullshit. So, um, it's, it's been great, great talking with you. Uh, would love to have you back at some point when you get uh, closer to the, to the book and the foundation up and running and, and kind of talk about those things. But, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for coming and, and appreciate all that you've been through and all that you've done. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me out. Yeah. Dude. It's been, it's been awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My, my pleasure. Uh, with that, I hope you guys have enjoyed. Uh, I also hope that uh, if you're still listening, that you've uh, entered into this conversation with an open mind. 
you know, uh, to me, that, that's an important element and it's hard to do sometimes, I think, when when we're so politically charged as a society through social media and regular media, cable news, etc., um, where we have these preconceived notions of what we think happened based on what somebody uh, told us that has, you know, no intimate firsthand knowledge of, of anything in a situation. And I think that's how something like this happens. And so I hope that um, that, you know, all of the, the questions and uncertainties that people have had about your story uh, and this this trial and this case from the get go of, of how it could have happened and how it got to that point. Uh, I hope that, you, that your questions are uh, are largely answered. I know mine are, um, you know, and, and it puts me uh, in a good, good mental place and puts me at ease knowing that that you came out on the other side and that you kept fighting and, and that ultimately the truth got out and things happened that the way they did. So um fucking good on you and uh and again thanks uh thanks for coming appreciate it brother yeah as we wrap up here i want to take uh, a final closing minute to thank our three awesome sponsors which is origin labs maker of jocko uh, all of jocko's products as well as boots pants uh, geese and a host of other supplements great products that i use on a regular basis bubs naturals uh, which 10 percent of their sales goes to the glenn doherty memorial foundation Phenomenal collagen powder and MCT oil powder that I put in my coffee every single morning. Last but certainly not least, Blackwater Ammunition. Uh, lots of good products coming from from them in the future. Their R&D development uh, team has come out with some uh, some really uh, kick-ass blaster food, if you will, with, uh, with rifle ammo, pistol ammo. Uh, and shotgun ammo, as well as some uh, some pretty gnarly uh, 50 cal rounds. But uh, they had a gracious donation to Eddie Gallagher's family, uh, as well as uh, sending out some product. And uh, we're appreciative of, of all of our sponsors. So thanks to all three of them again for supporting the podcast. Uh, for you, the listener, uh, as always, thank you. Uh, we could not continue to bring you this platform if it weren't for the hundreds of thousands of people that, uh, that pay attention to my dumb ass. So I appreciate you guys tuning in uh, as always. And uh, until next time, this is Mike Drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.